tip today in association with Slatteries of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slatteriesgarage.ie Welcome along to Tip Today, 1800-938-007, our free phone number. Emma is looking after the programme today, and my thanks to uh, my colleague Ali for looking after you so well last uh, Friday. Coming up on this morning's show, the Taoiseach's visits uh, to UHL. Also, the criteria for debt write-off following the DJ Carey controversy. Why parents should stop forcing children to kiss or hug relatives. Mandatory open disclosure. Alan Kelly will speak to us about the new bill. Global politics with Thomas Conway. The impact of heart disease on children. We'll hear from one temporary mother. And of course we have the weekend sports review with Paul Carroll as well. So all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text and WhatsApp. Going three three double one double three double one. You can email tip today at tipfm.com. A look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. The Irish Daily Mail, they're leading with Doyle. Uh, misled over illegal drugs policy, the illegality even of the government policy of excluding mental illness sufferers over the age of 16 from the long-term illness scheme was hidden from the Doyle for years. And that's according to today's uh, Daily Mail. Right across the newspapers today, needless to say, um, there's much about uh, the big BAFTA night for the Banshees of Inishirin and uh, will be hearing more about that on the programme in just a little while. Uh, The Irish Times, and it's dominated by a picture of gorgeous Kerry Condon, of course, accepting her Supporting Actress Award for her role in The Banshees. Also on the Irish Times today, the government is scrambling to temper public expectations about the scale of cost of living measures being announced tomorrow. And uh, ministers have said the package on offer will be significantly less than the measures announced in the budget. And the Irish Times understands that it may not reach €1 billion. Also on the Times, a DUP uh, MP has warned huge gaps remain to be addressed in the negotiations between the European Union and the UK amid speculation that the two sides could agree on a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol this week and hopefully indeed that will be the case. Also across the papers today um, the story of that fatal shooting of the Corkborn Bishop uh, David O'Connell in Los Angeles uh, being treated as a homicide and a murder investigation is uh, underway. I, my understanding of that story is that Bishop O'Connell was uh, pivotal in a mediation between various gangs in Los Angeles and uh, he was very effective seemingly in that so a tragic death there Uh, the Irish Examiner and they're telling us that AIB is set to be hauled before the Oireachtas Finance Committee over a jaw-dropping settlement it made with the former GAA star DJ Kerry which saw more than 99% of his multi-million euro debt written off now this is something we'll be talking about later on in the programme but I would love your view on that I mean, you know, so many people have suffered at the hands of the banks. And then we see 99% of DJ Carey's multi-million euro debt just completely written off just like that. So again, your opinions, please. Um, 
in the Irish Indo. And uh, the first price cut in the cost of electricity can be revealed. So some good news here. A move that is set to pile pressure on the larger players in the market to reduce costs for households. And just finally, a Social Democrat TD was uh, contacted by the state's uh, ethics watchdog about a donation that appeared to be over the legal limit. So they're all at it. Um, 083-311-3311 for your text and WhatsApp. You can uh, email at any time. That's tip today at tipfm.com. Now, huge congrats to Thurless woman Kerry Condon who scooped the Best Supporting Actress Award at the BAFTAs last night. And that was, of course, for her role in the Banshees of Inishairn. And uh, we're so delighted for her here at Tip FM. Here's just a small clip from her acceptance speech last night. Amazing cast, lads. Thank you so much. You were so kind and generous to me. Thank you so much. Really, Colin, Brendan, thank you very much. Um, I have to thank my family in Ireland. They were always at the other end of a phone for me all through the years, keeping me company. I love you so much. Thank you. Um, And I have to thank my horses and my dogs because (laughs) they showed me so much love and gave me so much meaning in my life. Um, Thank you. I'm really, really grateful. Thanks a million. Lovely speech and a beautiful Tipperary accent as well, even though I think Kerry has been in the States for about 20 years, but uh, certainly uh, no change to the uh, lovely Tipperary accent there. 1800-938-0070. On Friday, members of the Midwest Hospital Campaign met uh, with the Taoiseachley of Radcar, calling for the reopening of the A&Es in Ennistina and St. John's and tackling the issue of overcrowding at University Hospital Limerick. Our show contributor and a member of the Midwest Hospital campaign. Connor Reedy met with the teacher. Can he join us now? Connor, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. And can I just say a major congratulations to Kerry, but also a major congratulations to um, Nina's Daryl McCormack, who had two nominations last night um, at the BAFTAs. Uh, and a Darryl's terrific man, talent as well, isn't he? Daryl is amazing, yeah. and his mother Teresa is uh, was a founder member of the Nina Needs a Say and E campaign actually yeah, before she moved away to the UK. So um, great people, and delighted for everyone last night. Very good indeed. Say that. Yep. Connor, I'm confused about your meeting with the Taoiseach, um because it looks like he said two different things, or he indicated two different things. Um, is that a fair summation? Yep. Um, Nina Needs a say and e were fortunate to be part of a meeting with the Midwestern Hospital Campaign and uh, the Taoiseach on his visit to Limerick on Friday afternoon. Now, earlier in the day, the Taoiseach indicated to a group of reporters at UHL that he was essentially ruling out reopening EDs at Ennis, Nina and St. John's as 11,000 people campaigned for in January. And when we got to the venue where our meeting had taken was, was taking place with the Taoiseach, uh, the reporters had tipped us off. We hadn't been aware of this news. The reporters tipped us off that this is what was said. So when we got into the meeting at 3.15, um, this was the first thing we respectfully challenged the Taoiseach on. We said, well, you know, you have ruled this out in advance of even meeting with us you have publicly ruled it out so kind of why are we here and his words were and I'm paraphrasing as closely as I can here he said 
I'm long enough in politics and uh, especially having been through the COVID pandemic, I'm long enough to ever uh, definitively rule anything in or out. Those were his words. And is that as confusing for you as it is for me? I mean, what really is he saying there? Is he telling us what we want to hear? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's possibly a big element of that. Um, was, what, is, he, is he giving the, the real picture to the public via the, the media in, uh, earlier on? But I will say, when we came out of the meeting, Fran, and we went downstairs uh, in the venue, again, we were confronted with a lot more reporters, cameras, radio, and uh, um, print journalism. Mm. And before we started our press briefing to them, uh, we said, well, he, he, he actually... I, I outlined it just as I've done to you. He said he never definitively, definitively rules anything in or out right. and everything has to stay on the table. And Fran, their heads all just started to shake. They looked at each other, threw their hands in the air and they said he's just said the opposite to us. It's uh, incredible. It I, is incredible. I, I was reading something else as well, Connor, and I'm not sure about the source of this, but seemingly he didn't anticipate then that all three A&Es were going to be reopened at most one would be. Um, did did you come across that as well? Well, uh, words were very important uh, with the Taoiseach. Um, and rather than framing it as an A&E reopening in the, in, within the meeting, he was framing it as a hospital upgrade. And he said, well, you know, it would be a massive big ask to reopen three A&Es. How would you feel about one? And if if how if it was one, which one would we reopen? Which one would you be happy to see us reopening if it ever came to that? And our response was, we are the Midwest Hospital campaign. We're made up of Limerick, Nina and Ennis. And yes, each branch of the campaign is going to lobby and fight to have its A&E reopened. But at the end of the day, one would be a massive start because what that would do is unplug a world of pressure from mm. UHL straight away. Right, but which one, Connor? Which one is a big decision mm. to make? Um, as I pointed out uh, very, very clearly in his pushback against the reopening of emergency departments in Ennis, Nina and St. John's, um, the Taoiseach cited international trends towards the centralisation of acute medicine away from smaller hospitals. Mm. And he, I think he cited Texas and Canada as large open spaces. I mean, you know, we don't live in uh, Texas and Canada. We're here in, in the Midwest of Ireland. Our response was that while, while this is all well and good, this centralisation idea in medicine is all well and good, it takes no account of geography and factors like the all-important golden hour in some medical emergencies. Mm. And this test, we pointed out, and I pointed out to him, very simply cannot be met in the unique geography of the Midwest Health Region, which stretches from the village of Laura in the north of Tipperary to Loop Head on the far west coast of Clare. It's simply not possible. That's our geography. We're not in Texas or Canada. We're here, and this is our problem. So yeah. how how you choose an ED to open out of that. But then the people in Ennis can also open up that they... Can, can, the people in Ennis can also argue that they are um, just minutes away, our, you know, under half an hour away from um, the Cliffs of Moher, which is one of this country's uh, greatest tourist sites. You have, you know, mm. swathes of tourists come in mm. there so they every year, so they have a big argument as well. So 
how you make that choice, but it's, whatever choice yeah. would be made, and this is not us backing down off our three A&Es, but whatever choice you make first would be um, a major yeah. unplugging of the I, pressure. I'm not trying to paint myself into the picture, Connor, but did you put it to him that uh, Stephen Donnelly said on this programme that the model of UHL has failed? I really, I actually did, Fran. It was in my submission. Um, I I presented a written presentation, an oral presentation, but it was it was pre pre scripted, mm. and um, I absolutely uh, pointed out that he spoke to Tip FM Radio. Mm. That Stephen Donnelly, Minister for Health, spoke to Tip FM Radio on a date last June, which I had named. I don't have it in front of mm. me, and he said in response to a question about reconfiguration, Minister Donnelly told you, Fran Curry, that reconfiguration clearly has not worked. Um, and I made that, po- he heard, believe me, he heard that mm. point and he got it because that that remains now, that moment that you had with, with Minister Donnelly remains actually one of my personal key uh, argument points going forward because that was a massive admission. Now, in a sense, the Taoiseach didn't address that Mm. directly. But what he did kind of say in another part of his presentation was, yeah, the problem here was that we still believe in the model. We still believe in what was done, but it was just done very badly. It was just done uh, the wrong way. I'm reading another quote, and again, I'm not sure about the exact source of the quote, but it says medical advice is that the opening of four A&Es or three A&Es is not going to be the solution. There needs to be a myriad of things happening at one time. Is that accepted by your group? I'm just wondering, Connor. What's accepted by our group is that we had uh, three and four A&Es that were allowed to, up to the late 2000s, first decade of the 2000s, we had four A&Es that were allowed to fall into states of Mm. under-resourcing and uh, understaffing and hospitals that became poorly equipped and not upgraded parts parts of machines and testing and diagnostics not upgraded for many years and so yeah that's the first thing we accept that that happened but we did have four in the a and e's now what we do have is um a population that is crying out for proper emergency health care we know, we're very aware, you see, Fran, and this is the mistake people make about us, is that we're very aware that, that the political system, the medical system, uh, and, and many people in between, not necessarily ordinary folk, see us as very naive in what we're asking for. To reopen an A&E like Nina would probably run into hundreds of millions mm, mm. because you're looking at all those things I've said and upgrading of diagnostics, uh, personnel, Yes. getting the highly skilled personnel back in. Op- operating theatres and the operating like Operating theatres yeah. and the like. Mm. But, um, as I said, and I pointed out to the Taoiseach, well, the day we have, the day we start putting mere money um, ahead of the well-being of, and the, the health and the, the, the care, the emergency health care of almost three counties, that, that money and, and, and those steps that are an obstacle, um, that's a very bad day and that's yeah. a very troubling moment. And what I pointed out to him was that, and I've said it on the radio before, and I pointed out to him, it makes it sound like I was the only one speaking in the meeting, Fran, I wasn't. Sure. <laughs> there were other sure. reps from Ennis yeah. and, and Limerick. But the thing I pointed out was, this can anything can be done. In early 2020, 
you raised out of nowhere, these were my words to, to Leo Varadkar, in early 2020, you raised out of nowhere a testing and tracing system for COVID-19 and a year later, a vaccination system for COVID-19 that were, you know, world-beating. They yeah, were fairly yeah. good. They had their teething problems and they're absolutely... Yeah, but it worked. That's understandable, it worked. but it yeah. works so yeah. very well. And you raised this massive infrastructure out of thin air. And my closing point to him was... Um, probably a bit cheeky, but I, I looked him in the eye and I said, Tisha, what I'm asking you to do and the other uh, politicians around the table here is find your, uh, unleash your inner Dr. Noel Brown. Mm. He waged a war on TB yeah. back in the day as a Minister for Health. And um, we're asking you to wage a war on this immovable problem where, as other representatives of the campaign right. said to and, him... And how did he react to that, Conor? Uh, he, I think, was taken aback that uh, that anybody knew who Dr. Noel Brown was for a start. <laughs> and um, But then, but then, uh, and he, he did, he said he was a fan of Dr. Noel Brown. Um, and then he said Dr. Noel Brown didn't cure TB. And I said, no, he didn't cure TB. He waged a war on TB. Um, but then I said, and I have another message for you as well. I want you to take back to the mandarins, to the officials, to the bureaucrats who run the HSE and the Department of Health, that they need to unleash their inner Dr. T.K. Whitaker. Mm. Now, many people might not be familiar with who Dr. T.K. Whitaker was. He was the Secretary General of the Department of Finance, voted yes. the most important person. And he was behind the, the masses, the masses and he was behind incredible masses. sort of moving forward of the country in the and, 1960s. And I, and I, as well, my yeah. very final line was, what would... Dr. T.K. Whitaker, think of what's going on now uh, and, and yeah. how the Midwest has been let down. So, great, um, great question. Great yeah, question, yeah. indeed. So, um, two, two things before I let you go. Were you surprised that Stephen Donnelly wasn't there? This was, um, I forget whose party is who. No, this was, we were part of a, uh, uh, a series of meetings that the Taoiseach was holding on behalf of Fina Gale yes. rather than the government that afternoon in the venue. He did his public duties at UHL and um, I mean when we left the room there were a bunch of Fina Gale councillors waiting to come in. Yeah. Um, so it, it was in that context. Now Willie O'Dea did represent from uh, from Limerick as a, a government TD but yeah. as far as I know he was the only non-government one in the room. I will say Fran um, we did get two kind of uh, Significant. I think they may turn into concessions, important concessions from the Taoiseach. Um, since the emergency departments closed down in Nina, Ennis and St. John's, uh, we, we were given local injury units, as we well know. Yes. And these are these services are a vital component to the delivery of healthcare in our regions. And they're very important and have provided a great service. But they're very limited by their opening hours. Mm. Now, I made it clear to the Taoiseach on behalf of Nina Needs this a and that we are calling for the local injury units to be open 24-7 because that's a no-brainer. Again, the words I used. Now, second to that, in January and early February of this year, in response to the January collapse of U- at UHL, the HSE and UHL hospital groups introduced this pathway scheme that listeners will have heard about, whereby ambulances are now able to convey a limited number of appropriate cases to mm-hmm. Nina and Dennis medical assessment units. Again, I put it very strongly to the Taoiseach, got, got agreement around the table, that this will collapse unless those existing very under-resourced units are urgently right. given additional resources. And right. his response to those two things was, 
let me take this back. Those two things you've asked for are doable now in the short term, he says. So he said, so let's let me take back th- that back to Stephen Donnelly and okay. the HSE because these are All right. Where, where, just briefly, Connor, where to now? Um, the fight goes on, Fran. Yeah. As another uh, legendary Irish politician once said, we haven't gone away mm. and we won't be going away. Um, you know, 11,000 people are, that came to the streets of Limerick in January is our mandate. The Taoiseach heard our horror stories, our family stories. Mm. They're, they're, you know, he was he was very taken aback, I will say that. So where we go from here is one thing we did was we asked him, engage with us. Mm. Talk to us. We're not the enemy. And we hope that that goes forward. Um, we will continue communications. We have good lines of communications opened up, opened up um, with with certain parliamentarians of all people. Uh, Deputy Roisin Shorthall of the Social Democrats has mm. been a great champion to us, actually since January. Uh, well, actually since October. Yes. And of all people, she has she has quietly behind the scenes been communicating very, with very us. Good. And any any yeah. uh, Tipperary TDs there? Um. No. To my knowledge, they weren't invited, again, mm. because it's a Fine Gael event. Mm. Um, mind you, Willie O'Dea was there, so I'm not sure of the machinations of that. But Tipperary TDs don't engage with this campaign, Fran. The Limerick and Clare TDs, like, this this meeting was facilitated and was, was engineered by uh, Deputy Cahill Crow, um, Fianna Fáil of County Clare. He was the one, I understand, made this yes. meeting happen. Um, they do engage sometimes in a boisterous way with their campaign. We, we, we argue the toss over and back, but Tipperary TDs don't engage with our campaign. Michael Lowry did come to the protest, but that's as good as we've got here in Tipperary. The Limerick TD is the same, and they will engage with the campaign, right. but here in Tipperary we've no engagement. All right, Connor. always good to talk to you, and uh, con- continue friend. the fight anyway, Connor. and thanks so much for talking to me today. Appreciate Thank it. you. Thank really you, Bye-bye to you now. That's Dr. Connor Reedy speaking to us there about Leo Radcar's visit to UHL. What do you make of that? 1800 938 007. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie As I said at the top of the programme, the Irish Examiner is telling us today that the AIB is set to be hauled before uh, the Aractus uh, Finance Committee over a settlement made with the former GA star DJ Carey, which saw more than 99% of his multi-million euro debt written off. The majority state-owned bank agreed it would write down over $9.5 million in debt owed by the former Kilkenny hurler to just €60,000 in 2017. The junior minister, Derek Leary, said that he had been contacted by many people in recent days who were furious that they haven't had access to this kind of settlement. And certainly talking to people over the weekend, a lot of people incensed by this. Our show, uh, show contributor and uh, community activist Liam Brown joins me now. Liam, good morning to you. Good morning, fine. And good to talk to you today, Liam. With your background in economics, Liam, what do you make of this, that kind of write-off? How is that explained away? 
very, very difficult to, to explain it away. And I don't think having a, a degree in economics uh, would help in any way because if you were to apply normal economic principles to it, you certainly wouldn't have let somebody to get into that amount of debt in the first place and you wouldn't write off that amount of debt in the end. Um, mm. I mean, surely a bank a bank that, that gave any loans to that extent would have assets which would back up the loans. I know if any of your listeners, including myself, when we have a mortgage, mm. we get a... We, we get a loan based on the value of the asset that we're putting the mortgage against. And if yes. we don't pay our loan, the asset gets taken off us. And, and your deeds and, are, are in the bank vault. <coughs> yeah. That's it. That's how it normally works. In yeah. this case, it goes back to what I imagine people are very angry about. It just seems that there's one rule for a certain circle of people in the country and there's another rule for the vast majority of the rest of us. Do you know, Liam, what is the criteria for write-off? Or how, how does that work? Or is it just ad hoc? It is, uh, to my, it is very ad hoc. It is yeah. very simply that you'd sit down with a bank um, once you'd get into a certain level of debt and you'd put whatever assets you have on the table. I mean, there's an awful lot of people going through this and I can imagine if they're, if they're listening to this, they're banging their heads off walls. Yeah. Um, fine, because, you know, you go through an insolvency process and the bank will, they'll practically send you out, wouldn't they? It's not to the practice. They will send you out uh, documents which as much as tell them how much you're eating, how much you're spending on mm-hmm. uh, petrol to, to get into your car, how much you're spending on your phone and you would have to document every single penny that you have and they will take as much as they can off you and leave you with a very, very basic um, level of existence or subsistence or what, whatever you want to call it and make sure that they get their money back off you. I'm sure those businesses have closed in the past 12 months, an awful lot of businesses are closing. And again, the banks will be forced in there to get as much as they can back out of business people. Yes. Um, but in this case, one, to allow such a debt to be run up in the first place seems crazy without having it backed by, by tangible assets is what they're called. And secondly, to allow that debt to run on for that length of time to the point where you practically... Look, that's a, that's a full write-down. I mean, €60,000 at the end of yeah. nine nine and a half million €9.5 million, it's a pittance. It's less than 1%. Um, but there is no... And, and this is the problem, and you're going to see um, he's being called in, or the, the banker being called in front mm. of an Oireachtas committee. And I really don't know what they're going to say, apart from they'll probably fob it off by saying they don't want to talk about individual cases. You know, this seems to be the yeah. way out of everything. You know, we but, don't want to talk about a private individual case. But Derek O'Leary made the point that, you know, people are furious about this. It certainly was my experience chatting to people over the weekend, Liam. What are you hearing from people on this? The exact same thing. You know, yeah. I mean, like, if you go back to the, the last big bank scandal, and this, this AIB, AIB are a bank that have got into at least three major scandals mm. in the past 25 years. Mm. And in all, all three of them, they've had huge um, taxpayer payouts. Mm. And remember, the AIB are still majority owned by the taxpayer even today. So when the AIB write down money, to an extent, that's taxpayer money that, that's been lost. People are, are you know, the, the tracker mortgage scandal was the last big one. I mean, the banks were basically robbing people. And there's no two ways of saying about it. You know, they, they were taking people off tracker mortgage that were entitled, to be honest. They were taking money off people that they didn't have to pay if they gave them the proper um, the yes. proper mortgage. And this is all proven track. stuff. This is all public it's, knowledge it's all stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know, like... When, when I when I thought about speaking to you, I said, you know, you've got to be very careful what you say. You mm. don't get yourself or the mm. station into any problem with with, with legal. But mm. this is all this is all well known. Banks mm. were doing this. They've had to pay fines for doing this. So it's it's very obvious that they were taking money off people that they weren't entitled to. And on the other half, they're now giving out huge write downs yeah. to well known people. And, 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 and this is the thing. And let it's me put something people. to you, Liam, and I'd love your opinion on this. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. the majority state-owned bank here, so presumably there is government watchdogs on boards and all sorts of stuff there as well. 
because this is such a big deal, would this have been made known to government, for example? Well, I, I say this, you'll probably find that in government they'll tell you they weren't, that the, the bank was working as a, a private Autonomously, entity, yeah. yeah. Autonomously, and the bank can't get involved, or sorry, the government can't get involved in details of every single of every single um, individual account holder. But this isn't a normal account, and this isn't a normal amount of write-off. Now, whether it's for DG Carey or whether it's for anybody else, you know, if a bank are writing down that amount of money for uh, what is essentially a taxpayer-owned bank, well, then somebody inside in government should know about it. I mean, there should be a regulator. There should be somebody on the board. And there are government appointees mm, on the board. Yes. I mean, is everybody going to just turn around and, and say, oh, sure, we didn't know? Because that's that's what happens when you have these sort of things. Way too often, Fran. Mm. We didn't know. We couldn't get involved in the yeah. day-to-day running of the bank. Or, or it didn't get as far as the minister, or, you it, know. Oh, I don't think anything gets as far as the minister nowadays except invitations to go to... to, to uh, openings of envelopes, I suppose, at this stage, you know. I mean, you, you, they can't keep pushing away this responsibility the whole time. You know, we didn't know, or that letter didn't get to us, or I didn't read that memo, or maybe I read the memo, but I didn't understand the memo. I mean, nine and a half, nine and a half million euro of debt mm. is a massive debt. But if you go back to, and, and, and this is, is not being said, fine, and it should be said, but when Anglo-Irish Bank went to the wall, a huge amount of very, very well-known people in Ireland. And we're talking sports stars, we're talking people who, people in RTE, mm. we're talking people in the business community. They all got huge write-downs of their debt yeah. as well. Yeah. And again, the taxpayer paid off that debt. And there doesn't seem to be any sign of that money coming back. Right, but, but well-known people are getting this, um, these write-downs and ordinary mm-hmm. people are having the life frightened out of them and, you know, for relatively modest sums by comparison. That's the issue, Fran, and that's, what we, that's why we say we have a golden circle in this country that always seems to look after and protect itself. The old adage, you know, if you owe the bank 9,000 euro, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank 9 million euro, they're in trouble. But it, it, it's just this, it's constantly seems to be the way you find. You know, if you want to go back 30, 40 years, we, we had a T-shirt, Gareth Fitzgerald, he got a, a write-down off mm-hmm. AIB. Mm-hmm. You know, Charlie Hawhey got a huge write-down off AIB. One well, the, the 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 problems are when the Mahan Tribunal came out. That came out because they found out there was people getting write downs of of money, and that spiraled into a big big tribunal afterwards. But again, ordinary people, you go into the bank this morning and you tell the bank that you can't pay your mortgage, and I can assure you, friend, there's an awful lot of Irish people at the moment who are struggling to pay their mortgages with rises in interest rates and rising interest that are going to come, and they are frightened of the life of opening that letter from any bank, not just AIB, because they you know they're not going to be able to, to pay mortgages over the next couple of months. And they're afraid of how, how are they going to sit down and maybe make a settlement with the bank? Because if they do, and I can tell you because I know it, people have come to me and asked me to help them with it with some of the paperwork. Again, they get paperwork which basically tells them they, they need to know what they're eating and how much they're spending on a mobile phone. And the bank will decide, this is how much you have to live on. And it's a very, very modest amount of money. And they will take every other penny that you earn beyond that. But again, like I said, and as you said, people are angry talking to you because they see people who are well-known or celebrities who just seem to get this stuff wiped off. And it's not fair on ordinary people, but ordinary people are the ones who seem to get it in the nick all the time. Now, there is um, a kind of a windfall clause or agreement in there. And, and my understanding of that, maybe you could help me with it, Liam, it means that if cash or assets 
um, is received by Mr Carey over the coming years that the bank will have to be paid uh, anything in, in excess of 50 grand as far as I know. Um, so it's a kind of a windfall clause in there. Does that give you any more kind of... In other words, if he uh, gets another successful business up and running and he makes a lot of money or something, he will then be obliged to pay the bank back. Does that make you feel any better? No, it doesn't, Fran, because the reality of that is is that how will they know if he, get any, if he gets any windfalls? I mean, stopping short of him winning the Euro Millions and it being advertised on television, right. a bank wouldn't know that you had got any excess amount of money. Plus, I'd imagine you'd be very careful in, in advertising any windfall that you got that you would make sure that you wouldn't be handed straight away to the bank. These are the sort of things that get put in, but they're self-declared, and unless... As I say, you're kind of foolish enough to go in and say, oh, I, you know, I won the lotto at the weekend. Here's the money back. Right. You know, if, if somebody's putting up that level of debt, they're not going to right. go back and tell Is this bank. all about the fact that Mr. Carey won nine All-Star Awards in his career and was such a successful sportsman? Is this really what is at the centre of this? No, I think that I think that that's the reason why it's become so publicised. Right. Uh, because obviously DJ Carey is a very public figure. And I don't wish DJ Carey any personal yeah, um, course, animosity yeah. at all. You know, I mean, we all loved watching DJ yeah. Van Hurlan. Yeah. Uh, he he seems to be a pretty nice guy, apart from the fact that you know he he's got this huge debt written down. Yeah. But it goes it goes to the heart of was he treated differently? I mean, we're expected not to not to look at him differently because he won nine All Stars. Mm. But the reality in this case is he was treated differently by the bank than the ordinary Joe Soap on the street who might have got into debt. You know, who might have been trying to trying to keep people employed in a business who might have been trying to do his best. But this is a debt that was run up by buying major assets. You know, you're buying houses in the K-Club. You're, you're trying to run big developments. You're trying to make profit. There's a big problem in this country in which, you know, certain people think that they can borrow money from a bank, they can make a huge profit on a business or on, on property development, and if they get the profit, well, that goes into their back pocket and they get seen as successful people. But if they don't, the bank writes off the debt. I know, you know, so that's a bet that you can't lose. But that's not a bet that's available to 99% of ordinary people. Ordinary people. And that's where the anger is, and that's, and where, that's where the, the resentment is. is. Because, you know, yeah. The, second, the yeah. second, second somebody takes a mortgage out in the bank, they're frightened of their life for the next 30 years that they're going to need to get that, that payment at the end of the month to make sure that they, they, they keep a roof over their head. There's some people who don't seem to care that you know, if they lose a bet by taking out a loan, that the money will be taken back off them. So they're in a much more privileged yeah. position than ordinary people. And just, just and fi- finally, Liam, you know? Mick, Mick makes a very interesting point, and he says, I can't figure out how uh, doll committees can haul in AIB now. When interest uh, went up, or bank closures were on the cards, and ATM machines and all of that, didn't Pascal Donoghue say that the government can't intervere, intervene with banks in their day-to-day uh, affairs? So really, they, they might be able to haul them before the Oireachtas Committee, but, but that's about it, is it? I, I genuinely think it's, it's, it's going to be window dressing. Do you think? You know, it, it, I think it's because no more than fun that you were hearing people being very angry out on the street and I'm hearing people have been very angry talking about this. The politicians themselves are also hearing people being angry. So they're trying to think, oh, we better do something here that makes it look like we're doing something, but in reality, we're not going to do anything at all. So that will so mean nothing as far as you're concerned? It, it, will, it will mean nothing. You, you'll, you'll bring in top executives in AIB or in any of the other banks because I'm sure it's happened in other banks as well yeah. you'll ask them questions why does this happen can you give me the criteria and you'll get stonewalled at the far the, side of the table the only thing by. that they need to be careful of is if they put out a, criteria, a criteria out there Liam um, maybe they're setting precedent and people you know might be retrospectively looking at what happened to them and say hold on a moment here um, you know that, that could cause quite a lot of controversy I would imagine 
that's one of the things that anybody from AIB or any other banks would say uh, across the table that for commercial reasons they cannot divulge how they deal with customers and that the committee would have to understand that they couldn't say this otherwise it would cause other problems and it would just be used as an excuse wow. to stonewall. So you're saying to me they could stonewall um, they the Oireachtas Committee? I won't say that they could stonewall, fine. I will guarantee you, if they if they ever get hauled up in front of a committee in the first place, that's exactly what they'll do, fine. That is exactly what they'll do. They'll stonewall. They will say they can't talk about individual accounts. They will say that they can't talk about, uh, you know, market market conditions or how they would you know, trade secrets. They're not going to use trade secrets, but they're going to say something like that, that they couldn't put out that sort of criteria because if they did, there would be a knock-on effect in which case they would have to deal with possibly thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people looking for the same deal and then that would sink the bank and then that would cost the taxpayer money and then we would be back into the same problem we have again. So it would be a complete stonewall, Frank. Liam, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time this morning, Liam. Thank you. About our good, friend, you're good, welcome. good morning to you. Bye-bye to you now. That is uh, one of our show contributors, community activist Liam Brown there uh, speaking to this morning. How do you feel about that? 1800-938-007. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie if it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Good to hear from my old friend, former councillor David Doran uh, today from Thurlis. And uh, David says, fair play to Conor Reedy and all of the Midwest uh, campaign team. The fight needs to go on. The bottom line is that lives are being lost while the A&Es remain closed. Now, there are a lot of times when family gatherings end with kids being told to give granny a hug or kiss or give granddad a hug or a kiss. But should we force them to hug or kiss a relative? Well, Dr Mary O'Kane is a lecturer in psychology and early childhood education, teaching with the Open University, and she joins me now. Good morning to you, Mary. Morning again, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed. And thank you so much for coming on with me this morning, Mary. What is your stance uh, on this? I mean, it seems like a simple act to me and is something we're all used to but is it is it bad for our kids i know it's becoming a bit of a contentious one fran yeah. it this has actually stemmed from france and that's why psychologists are talking about it again you know in france they have the tradition of kiss on the cheek mm. whatever when you meet somebody mm. so french children are expected from the time they're very young to greet any adult whether they know them or not, with a kiss from the cheek. And if they don't do this, it's considered impolite and your know, parents are criticised because of your know, children's lack of manners and stuff. So during COVID, of course, this had to stop. You know, during the pandemic, social distancing, there was no kiss on the cheek. Yes. So only recently has this started again. So for most children, this is fine. You know, they'll meet an adult and they're happy to give them a kiss on the cheek. But this is a reason now because there's a, a cohort of children. I suppose they have, haven't seen this. They haven't experienced this for the past few years. And suddenly they are being told, you must kiss these adults on the cheek, whether you choose to or not. And some children are really struggling with it. So I think across the world, psychologists are now thinking, you know, we really need to think about this. Mm. And it's funny, in Ireland, you know, we don't have that tradition of, mm. of you know, kissing on the cheek. But we really do have a tradition of um, respect for our elders, which is obviously very important for children. Um, but 
again, I think it's just brought up conversations here. You know, we might meet relatives or something. And again, with COVID, we're meeting people we haven't seen for a long time. And so often we expect children, look, you must hug this person. You sit up there on their knee and give them a kiss now. You know, it's expected. And as I said, some children write as rain. But we just need to be very careful about forcing children to do this if they're uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I remember years ago on a radio programme, Mary, a lady coming on and she told me she was forced by her mother to kiss a dead relative in the coffin. And she said to this day, and she was in her 50s at that stage, it still haunted her. And she, she was forced into this situation, you know. And it's funny, I think it's to do with respect, you know, and when we want our children, obviously, to be kind, we want them to be considerate, Mm. particularly to family, particularly to people who are important to us. But then, generally speaking, we are trying to teach our children about consent these days. Mm. So we'll very often say to children, you know, you know, no adults can touch you without your permission or whatever. So we, we use words like stranger danger. But really, our message for our children should be um, that they have autonomy. And if something really makes them uncomfortable, they you know, we should acknowledge that discomfort. Right. Should we be led by the child um, uh, at these times then, Mary? See, yes, I definitely think so, Fran. Yeah. Now, as I said, so many children, they really won't have an issue. Like, they'll be happy as Larry to mm, go in mm. and meet, you know, in a big family gathering, say, for example. But, but say as a parent, if a parent's listening to this round, they think, actually, my child is not really comfortable with, you know, this uh, forced affection, if you like. Mm. Talk to them. Talk to them beforehand. And... Remember, it's not that they don't care about the person. You can say, like, if you don't want to give somebody a hug or you don't want to give them a kiss, what would you do? You, know, you could shake hands, mm. you could give them a high five, you could blow them a kiss. Maybe you could paint a picture or bring a picture for somebody. So there's so many ways for your child to show an adult that they care about them or to show respect, if you like. Um, I, you know, I think the real danger plan is we want them to learn to trust their own instincts, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it comes to their safety, like their surroundings, people they don't know very well, people they meet for the first time. We want through childhood them to learn to really trust their instincts. Um, so I suppose we know that your know, great uncle John is a lovely, gentle person, but your child needs to learn that. They need to make that decision um, and they need to to learn to trust their own feelings. Um, mm. Yeah, I definitely talk to them. And maybe talk to the adults if you feel it's necessary too and just let them know. The Irish, I don't think, well, certainly my generation, we weren't the most tactile of people anyway. And yeah. and then all of a sudden, yeah, you're right, kids were put in a situation where they had to hug and kiss somebody that they hardly knew. Yeah, it's true. And sometimes it might be just saying that to maybe granny or granddad even. I mean, it can be somebody like close. If you have a child who's just not that comfortable, just to say to them, you know, look, I've been talking about body autonomy and whatever, you know, or you know, he's just not that comfortable. You know, he loves to give a high five or he loves to blow you a kiss. Or, you, but you're just letting the adult know just so that they're not offended. I think often we, we are so worried about disappointing 
people in our family yeah. that we love as yeah. parents. And we might be embarrassed that everyone else's child is happy to kiss us with our knees and ours isn't. We're, we're sort of mortified, you know. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the screen in front of me here. One of our listeners says, ah, this is more woke nonsense. You never did us any harm to kiss our parents and grandparents. Um, what, can what I do you, disagree on that one? You, you certainly can, can, Mary. Yes. Can I disagree? Yes. For most of us, that person is right. It did us no harm yeah. to kiss our parents or to kiss our grandparents. But there are a, a number of adults in Ireland now who, as children, were never told about consent. Yes. So we need to teach our children, you know, what is consent? We want to express positive feelings for others, but we want to do it in a way that I'm comfortable with and you're comfortable with. To be honest, Fran, even as an adult, you know, if I came into the studio there and mm. I made a dive for you, and you, came, you might think, whoa. Like, <laughs> you know, every one of us yes. should be allowed to think, oh my gosh, I'm not necessarily comfortable with that. We're kind of teaching them boundaries, you know, for that they will hopefully have for the rest of their lives. Mary, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you so much for coming on with us today. You're thank welcome, you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Mary O'Kane there. And Mary is a lecturer in psychology and early childhood education. And she's teaching at the moment with the Open University. Just wondering, what do you think uh, about that? Have you been put in situations like that when you were a kid? Um, that was awkward for you, uh, situations that you really uh, didn't want to be in. I'd love to hear from you on that. Or, again, like one of our listeners says, it's woke nonsense, and um, sure, it did us no harm. Uh, 83 311 Just a couple of mentions. I was in um, Clannacinny last night. Um, I wasn't. I was in Clanmore, in fact, at Fitzpatrick's Country Club there. And uh, hospitality was fantastic from John. And we had a ball and met lots of lovely uh, people there as well. And I'm delighted to see that John has dancing and entertainment back up and running again. And fabulous food there as well. So we want to wish him well. The night before, uh, I was uh, still in Tipperary. And uh, we were at the uh, Round Hill Bar in uh, Carrigatore. And again, fantastic and well done to Pat and all of his team uh, there. And it was lovely to meet people I hadn't met in so long. And we chatted about everything and uh, anything, and uh, particularly to Mary and Noreen that I met at the bar for a while. And uh, Tom was there as well, Tom Kelly, and we had a lovely chat uh, as well. So hello to everybody I bumped into over the weekend. And um, I'm sorry if I'm not naming everybody, but there were so many people and they were... um, Uh, telling me how much they enjoyed listening to Tip FM. And, of course, needless to say, I spent most of the time talking about uh, Johnny Luby uh, as well. Uh, I wonder why. I wonder why, indeed. Keep your text and WhatsApp coming into us, uh, 083 311 And uh, you can email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on. On 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Good morning, Pat, and uh, welcome back to the second hour 
of Tip Today. Michael was on and he says, Fran, I got into financial difficulties some time ago and I owed 30000 to AIB. I struggled to pay, but eventually I got it paid and then I was informed that there was still 9000 interest uh, outstanding. I paid faithfully every month. I got that down to 2100 I then contacted ANB to make a settlement, but they refused point blank even to take the €100 Euro off. So you can understand I'm feeling pretty sore on hearing of DJ Carey's write-down. That's Michael on 0833113311. Now, legislation that will establish mandatory open disclosure in the healthcare system passed through the Doyle last week. The Patient Safety Bill 2019 will now go to the Shannon and is then expected to be signed into law by President Michael D. Higgins. Now, it means that it will be mandatory for patients to be informed of their right to patient-requested reviews following representations from the uh, 221-plus cervical check support group. Tipperary Labour TD Alan Kelly paid tribute to his uh, friend, the late campaigner Vicky Phelan, as the bill passed through the Doyle, and Alan joins me now. Good morning to you, Alan. Morning, friend. Good to talk to you today. It strikes me, Alan, that this was one of the most emotional pieces of legislation to go through the Dáil in recent times. Absolutely. Um, it was very emotional for me and indeed for others. Um, I had Lorraine Walsh, who was on your show a number of times, mm. friend, uh, who campaigned with Vicky uh, in the chamber. I had her in the building uh, at the night it was passed. And another good friend uh, of Vicky's, John Wall, was there, who's mm. been on your show many times. Yeah cancer campaigner as well. Um, for me, uh, I said in the chamber that, you know, when Vicky passed, uh, she always made sure that uh, nothing was left unsaid. There was nothing left unsaid between the two of us. Um, and I promised that nothing would be left undone. Um, and this was the cornerstone of that, uh, getting the patient safety bill through to ensure military open disclosure from health service providers and from health practitioners uh, into the future so that what happened to her uh, wouldn't uh, be allowed to be the practice into the future. And, um, you know, I have to say, for once, um, politics worked. Uh, before Christmas, uh, Stephen Donnelly listened to my plea not to rush through this bill. Mm. I didn't think it was the type of bill and that, you know, you just have a majority and vote through. You needed the whole House's support on this. And uh, we worked on it all the way through January and up until last week and even up until the last few hours before the bill, there were negotiations going on. And eventually, Stephen T. Florian Walsh and 2 to 1 came out in support of it, uh, given the amendments that were finally put in at the very end. And those amendments were critically important uh, because they ensured that and across all screening services, when somebody goes for uh, to uh, do the screening, that they'll be told about uh, patient lookbacks, they'll be able to look and request um, you know, their files later on. Mm. But also, the critical amendment was that if somebody is diagnosed with cancer, uh, the subsequent to that, that they can be told about this as well. And that's what Vicky wanted. All right. And it's very complex legis- legislation, though, Alan. You you are satisfied, though, as you said yourself, it passes the Vicky test? Yeah, well, I kind that phrase because yeah. I thought we needed to uh, ensure that this legislation was absolutely right um, once and for all. And if it took a little bit more time, so be it. Um, so I believe it does pass the Vicky test. Um, you know, with two to one support, and it certainly I believe that. And it's a very, very complex piece of legislation that covers a number of other issues. For instance, it allows HICWA to inspect private hospitals. It deals with the whole issue of, of 
of audits and, and patient uh, reviews. And it also deals with mandatory open disclosure, which, you know, absolutely is critical. Mm. The, the paternalistic nature of some very, you know, not, not all now, but some uh, people who work in the health profession um, was documented very much by Scali. And, uh, you know, this will, will deal with that, that people mm. have to be told. And the other part of it is, like, this is a cornerstone. You know, we have the HPV screening, we have the HPV uh, vaccinations, um, the catch-up Laura Brennan programme. We have a process for bringing the labs back home, which has never been outsourced in the first place. Mm. So collectively, all of that, along with this piece of legislation, is what Vicky wants. Right. But you, you, you mentioned bringing the labs back home. I mean, are we prepared to act on the details of the legislation? Do we have the capacity? And, I mean, in terms of bringing the labs back home, what sort of a time scale are we talking about? Well, the Coombe is uh, built. Um, uh, the process now is to ensure that we have a lab that's big enough to take the majority of screening. Scally said in his report that we would need a backup lab, so we understand that that will, you know, we'll always have some form of backup. But per, my preference is to see all screening done at home in the coom. But the real issue, I suppose, as regards getting that up and running over the next couple of years, the scale required is recruitment. And uh, you know, once that is done, once people are trained, hopefully we will get there. Something you and I would have spoken to uh, spoken about quite a lot over the years was, you know, the nature of the litigation. And how that that sort of aggressive way of dealing with with uh, women in, in courtrooms, even you know, as they got to the end of their life, is there anything in the legislation that looks at that in some way? Well, I suppose in a way, the open disclosure nature of that um, nature of the legislation will help with that, because you know anybody, whether it's male, female, whatever, any situation across any health uh, issue, and you know, we've seen massive cases recently in the courts huge payouts because of negligence etc. Um, the open disclosure nature of this legislation now and how it's going to permeate across the health service you know, will hopefully ensure that issues are dealt with a lot earlier and a lot quicker and that should be good uh, uh, in the scenario where, which you just outlined there. Um, but there's no doubt that you know, you're still going to have obviously you're going to have cases and you're still going to have uh, situations whereby people are going to have to fight through the courts uh, and that is their right, that is their entitlement. I do think the government got it wrong as regards um, the tribunal they put in place for uh, those who were uh, badly treated in cervical check. I mean, we all know that only a small amount of people are going through that and their preference is to go through the courts. And that was totally unnecessary, especially after the Taoiseach went on 6-1 News and said that this wouldn't be the case and it wouldn't be adversarial. It very much is. Mm. And... Um, you know, that is something that I think is totally wrong. There's still a lot in the Scully report that hasn't been acted upon, though, Alan. And, you know, that's the only reason I'm a little bit cynical about any legislation that's there, because it all depends on how it's, it's dealt with. Yeah, I, I agree. Look, I mean, this is just legislation that has to be passed by the yeah. Senate and signed into law by the teacher. But really, it's about its implementation. And at the end of the day, it has to permeate and change culture across the health services in Ireland. And only when we see that change, when it can be, it can be demonstrated, then we'll know that it'll work. Like, it's one thing putting in place legislation for individual rights, but it's another thing making sure that the health services across Ireland change uh, with the legislation. And that will be a challenge, and there's no doubt about that. And Skelly has identified that uh, throughout his research. You know, he's spoken awful lot about how uh, certain, and I don't want to paint everyone's wrong brush because mm. that wouldn't be right, but a small amount of people you know, still act in a very paternalistic way and speak to people in a way which isn't acceptable as regards their own health.
healthcare and they get to choose what they tell the patient and how they tell them, etc. What this does is create a framework where it's not a case of it being questionable over what they should and shouldn't do. They now have to inform mm. the patient. Of course, that's a whole culture change, isn't it? It's massive. Yeah. Absolutely massive. Yeah, you're urging women as well that uh, had smears between 2018 and 2023 um, that they, they're included in the new legislation. Yeah, just something I kept highlighting because the process by which audits were done uh, prior to Vicky's case, they stopped. They stopped once she came out onto the steps. So I think it's, you know, Keen O'Carroll, who has been on your show mm. before from Cashel, mm. um, who worked very closely with Vicky, he has outlined very clearly that, you know, many of the parameters and the variables stayed the same uh, after Vicky uh, came out onto the steps. Uh, but yet the audit stopped. So as part of this, we've got a commitment from the Taoiseach that he would be ensure, or from the Minister for Health, that he would be ensuring that um, any women who basically were part of the screening programme, who, who obviously once the audit stopped, um, that they now, as part of this process, could have a patient review of their file if they so wish. So that was important to me. Is this something you are going to continue to monitor with great interest? Absolutely. I mean, look, I think this is going to take a number of years to implement. Um, just training. Scali has identified training as being critical um, to the whole culture that has to change. Uh, the minister has ensured that the uh, legislation uh, is one thing, but the implementation process will be done with patient representatives, uh, with the likes of Lorraine and Stephen, who I've spoken about before, and I think that's very important because it can't be just left to medical professionals, the Department of Health and the HSE to do this, and HICRA, etc. We also need patients uh, who have gone through uh, various different services to tell their experience and how uh, things need to change into the future. So they're going to be on the implementation group, which is very important as well. Can I ask you about that uh, litigation strategy? The Attorney General coming out and agreeing with the Taoiseach about, you know, where the uh, illegal nursing home charges were concerned and uh, others uh, denied their disability payments. And then again, the style, and again, we referred to this when we were talking about the new legislation, that style of courtroom stuff where, you know, it's really, really aggressive and it's painting people as the enemy and all of that. Does that, conti- does that worry you that that seems to be now accepted, that that's okay? Yeah. Now, just to say out straight, the Attorney General's uh, view on this is, is, is it, it's just, it's not worked, the papers written on, because that's not his or her role in life. Uh, his role... The political is, aspect of what he had to say, is that exactly, what you mean? Yes. Exactly. I mean, there's no, there's, that's not the role of an Attorney General. Attorney General gives advice to the president or to the Taoiseach and to the government based on the legal situation they find themselves in in relation to legislation or any other matters. He's not there or she is not there to justify, um, you know, political decisions mm. or to give a, a, a stamp yes. uh, on political decisions. That well, he he spoke about economics and all sorts of stuff in yeah, there as it's well. Not his, it's not his role. Yeah. Um, we're very clear that this is not his role. Attorney General is there to advise the government. I said, I had cabinet. I know the role of the Attorney General, and it's certainly not there to justify political uh, decisions historically or so what. So that was very worrying because the Office of Attorney General, Attorney General should not be used in that way to justify certain historical uh, decisions. What is worrying, of course, is that, um, you know, we have a situation in the country where we have the state's claims agency. That's actually a good idea that we have that because it takes away from the political and departmental roles of, of dealing with cases. 
But what is worrying is, you know, a permeating culture of essentially allowing people uh, concerns, issues, cases, whatever you want to describe them, let drift on purpose um, so that people won't uh, get their, uh, I suppose, what they deserve in relation to their court cases where they will do everything to prevent them getting to a stage of settlement and they will settle them as a strategy at the last minute uh, only if people have the whereabouts uh, financially and the actual determination to continue with their cases. And that's wrong. A state shouldn't be behaving like that, friend. And that's what really was worrying about what came out in relation to national charges. The government seems to be attempting as well to, I don't know, temper public expectations about the, the scale of the cost of living measures to be announced uh, tomorrow. Um, and we're hearing sort of mixed messages on that. How, how do you feel about uh, what will be announced or what you've heard so far? Well, I, you know, you hear a lot of like kind, but mm. I, think, I think the measures need to be targeted. Um, you know, I have a deep concern in relation to uh, people's uh, issues in relation to their bills coming through as regards eating, etc. Um, and, you know, from a cost of living perspective, we need, we need to look after the most vulnerable. So I hope that we're very much targeted. I also think we need to ensure particularly small businesses. I mean, Fran, since January, I've had so many small businesses around Tipperary, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, whatever package is put forward needs to ensure that they they uh, deliver for them too, because unfortunately, many of them, some of them are disappearing in front of our eyes and it's it's heartbreaking. And how do you feel about the VAT rate for hospitality, for instance? Because uh, it seems to be the case now that it'll go back up. Well, I suppose there's two sides to this. Firstly, um, we have had issues in this country in relation to gouging, uh, particularly in accommodation sectors, particularly in large urban centres. I, you know, worked in the hospitality industry, worked in Borfalch in the previous life, friend. Um, I know how difficult it is for many of these to go on. Uh, I think we should be looking, personal opinion, I think we should be looking at splitting the VAT rate between food and beverage and accommodation. Do you, do you think so? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. something that should be looked at. I, I, I know that you can't geographically, legally, they had, say, put in one VAT rate in Dublin and other in the rest of the country. I, I, and administratively, it would be nearly impossible. Well, that is the problem, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's a huge problem. Yeah. It's a huge problem. Yeah. The, the, the prices that have been charged in Dublin at the moment are absolutely uh, outrageous. Um, and they put many people off. Um, and it's affecting uh, the sector across the country uh, who aren't leveraging uh, you know, uh, prices like that or treat, aren't, aren't treating people fairly. So looking at the whole split between um, uh, accommodation and uh, food and beverage would be one way I think that they should consider. All right, before I let you go, there's great curiosity about what Alan Kelly is going to do um, in the next general election and the, and the like. Alan, have you made up your mind on your future in politics at the moment? Look, I suppose, friend, it's been, uh, you know, it was a turbulent, this time last year was a turbulent period, yeah, yeah. period for me. But, um, you know, I want to thank people who have been so supportive of me. Um, you know, I, 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 my intentions, I suppose, will become clearer in the, in the coming months. But mm. I, I took a period to reflect on, on my career and my, my, I suppose, my time in politics, and I'll continue to do that. Um, no firm decision I had um, it had me my intention to stand in the next election, and you know that's probably still the case. Um, but I will I will be uh, you know taking soundings from particularly my party colleagues and particularly the local organisation. Um, but at this moment in time, it would be my intention to do that. Um, but you know, life throws up a whole lot of different challenges, Fran. Um, 
the last year or so the uh, challenges you know from a, a political point of view for me as regards to changes mm. but I've enjoyed very much working locally I think my workload as regards in the constituency has probably doubled because I have more time and as long as you have more time you'll always have work friends um, so I'm enjoying that I really really truly and I'm enjoying helping so many people across the county um, with their various different issues through a very difficult time personally for many people across the living but also in relation to I suppose small businesses and I'll continue to do that Alright Alan good to talk to you today thanks for your time thank thanks, you good, good, good morning to you that's uh, Tipperary Labour TD Alan Kelly this morning 1800 938 007 the text to WhatsApp 083 Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage Puck On, you can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Molly says, uh, Fran, I feel so angry about the whole DJ Carey controversy. And when you think of all of the people who've had problems with the banks. And uh, Molly goes on then to give us some more uh, detail on that, which I I can't read out to you. But uh, thanks, Molly. And I think you're uh, representing the thoughts of many people out there this morning around Tipperary, 1800 938 007. Now, on our Friday panel, we discussed ministers who are travelling to 74 cities in 44 countries as part of an extensive programme to mark St. Patrick's Day. 36 ministers and junior ministers will be heading abroad. So I suppose the question is, is it necessary public relations for the country or is it just a junket for the ministers? Well, Willie joins me now. Willie, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Good to talk to you today, Willie. Uh, your thoughts on, on this? Is it a useful PR exercise for the country? Well, Fran, I mean, I, I heard most of the programme there Friday morning and the whole ministerial jamboree was, was portrayed as. I mean, I just asked the question, Fran, are we ever going to grow up a small bit in this country or mature some small iota of, of understanding? Mm-hmm. It's just populist, populist, populist. Let's attack everything. Just banana stuff. Like, I, I've given you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. And, and look, at maybe it is well in Dallas and on the programme. I'd be shot at dawn tomorrow <laughs> if I was that galady or, or age on, on national radio. Yes. Yourself and myself are of a general age, I suppose. We were mm-hmm. a child of the 70s. Yep. You grew up as a young man there, 80s, early 90s, same as myself. What was Ireland like, man, then? Remind yourself and the listeners, economically or It was a dark place, I suppose, Willie. Friend, we hadn't a pot to piss in, to be quite honest about it. <laughs> yeah. Unless you were the lucky few that were born into the big farmers or the big businesses or the wealthy professionals. Yes. It was a fairly bleak place. How was that changed, Friend, do you think? We went out there and we sold ourselves abroad. We went out there and we sent trade delegations, and whether it was Board BIA or whether it was the IDA or any number of bodies. Mm. Yeah, and they were headed by ministers and they were headed by politicians and so-and-so. That was how it was done, friend. Mm. We're a changed country. We're at full employment for all our, our troubles and maybe our social issues around housing and health. We're 4% unemployment, which is full employment. Mm. I mean, I'll throw a few figures at you, friend. Mm. Tourism. Tourism last year was worth 7 billion euros to this country. Foreign tourism coming into the country. 
domestically included, this is something like nine billion. And we seem to think it's not worth our while spending a few bob, sending a few government ministers abroad to bolster that. I mean, are we are we just shooting ourselves in both feet? Yeah, the, the very same conversation comes up every single year and people, in, in fairness, they're incensed by it but I'm, I'm not quite sure why except maybe they see it as some sort of a fancy holiday first class uh, plane travel, five star hotels, all of that Which look, friend, I haven't their itinerary for every, for every minister or everyone that's travelling, neither do you mm. It's not a holiday, friend, it's a working trip There'll be a few advisors or whatnot travelling with them and it'll be trade delegations, cultural delegations, tourism delegations. I mean, do we think there's no competitors out there in the world mm. that's looking to snatch the Intels or the Facebook or the Googles or anywhere else from under our nose that are here? And St. I mean, Patrick's I mean, Day, happens. in fairness, any country would kill for it because literally the globe turns green, doesn't it? Brian, it's the greatest guilt-edged opportunity this country has yes. to sell itself. Including, including to access to the White House, which is incredible. And, you know? Yeah, and you, yeah. there was a guy on there Friday got five minutes of spiel telling us that we shouldn't even be going to the White House, that Joe Biden or whoever the president is should be coming here to celebrate St. Patrick's Day with us. I mean, it's <laughs> almighty. Are they harmless or what? I mean, yeah. we're massive food producers in this country, Brian. Tipperary, mm. no different. I mean, prime agricultural land. Dairy products in this country was worth 9 billion euros to us last year in export. 9 billion. Mm. Or, or, sorry, with sticks and 3 and 4 million and meat products. We were up to 9, 10 billion euros a year in one sector alone. And we seem to think it's not worth our while going out there to build and bolster that. Mm. Why? To appease the Joe Duffy mob who want to moan for two hours on the radio every day. Right, but in fact, I mean, I'm not backing up Joe Duffy or, or any of us who does sort of interactive programming. But you see, you have to reflect what people are thinking as well, Willie. And, you know, I agree there should be a balance to it. But, you know, people, they, they get annoyed about this. I don't think there's any balance to it, Brand. It's just a constant tirade of negativity of the lowest common denominator that can be sunk to just right. to get an apocalypse reaction. Right, but let, let me just balance what you're saying. I mean, look at the cost of living. Look at the cost of energy at the moment. Look at how slow uh, the pumps are to react to the fact that, that, you know, diesel prices and petrol prices are going down globally now. Mm-hmm. And and you have the cost of living out there. People are struggling. Um, I agree, Fran. But is that not all the more reason why we need to drive on economic development in this country? Right, yeah. You know, what's the answer? The answer to everything isn't more dole, Fran. I mean, that's not sustainable. Mm. You know, I mean, in tourism, Jesus almighty, seven, I think I think something in the region of 300,000 jobs were sustained in tourism. And that's coming out of COVID. It was even higher previous yeah. to that. What? And we want to shoot ourselves in both feet. Right. Well, the, the only thing is we want to be careful of is the prices where our restaurants and hotels mm-hmm. are concerned. And I mean, I know that's determined by uh, lots of stuff. But I mean, you know, how do you feel, for example, about the, the VAT rate? Uh, because it appears it's going to go back to 13% now, do you? It does. It does look like it's going to go back over yeah. time in, in a step or two. And it's a pity because it was a great boost. It yeah. was a great boost to keep things going. But look, friends, we had all sorts of incentives there. We had we had energy subsidies, yeah. we had got wage employment subsidies and all the rest yep. to get through that crisis. They're not sustainable forever. And we all know that if we were somewhere realistic about it. Right, but are you saying we're not realistic in general? Is that it? I, I've, frankly, Fran, I don't know are we anymore. I yeah. mean, 
I mean, in a wider context, in a wider context, I mean, you look at the, on, on the global scale, I mean, you have a guy there, Thomas, I can't think of his second name, brilliant speaker, brilliant guy on you know, Thomas Conway, is it? Yeah, he's coming yeah. on here, here in, in, in yeah. a few months. I mean, yeah. In the last week, like, Nicola Sturgeon, fantastic speaker, great woman, mm. tremendous Scotland, politician, yeah. mm. has decided, you know what, Beckett, I just had enough. I'm sick of the relentless criticism. I'm sick of the, the begrudgery. I'm sick of the small-mindedness. It had the same thing in New Zealand there, uh, uh, but hold on now, you can't, you can't just throw that away. I mean, one of her reasons for resigning is because Scottish independence is, is down the toilet, really, at this point, isn't it? That, that, that was her, her reason for, for, for politics in the first place, I suppose. Other people could say it was never closer, considering the, ha- the hames that Boris Johnson has made of things over mm, there. You yeah, know, but, it's, but it's, still, it's very unlikely, and, and, you know, the, the, the rhetoric is that, you know, one of the reasons mm-hmm. why she stepped down, anyway. Sorry, do, one do them, go on. One of them. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Jacinda Ardern, yes. again, fabulous, young, young, able, competent, intelligent woman. And the reason she gave was, hey, just sick of it. Sick of the, the barrage of negativity, criticism and all the rest. Right, but, but again, again, that could be explained away by the economic damage that was done to New Zealand by their very harsh uh, COVID um, uh, policies, you know. That's, look, that's one, one interpretation of it. The other interpretation was she saved countless lives by, like, I mean, she was the darling of the media and saying how she it was. should be all done. She was, we, were, yeah. we were lambasting the government here because yep. it didn't shut down travel completely and make us some kind of a fortress. You know? Yeah. When she did the other, <laughs> she's wrong. How do you win? And, and can, I put, win? can I put something to you um, just in terms of the travel by the ministers? The only thing that strikes me, and we all seem to be hitting poor old Eamon Ryan on this programme, but is there a, some sort of hypocrisy about his carbon footprint, seeing that he's flying to, to China, he'll be in Hong Kong, he'll be in Shanghai, Singapore, um, a, a presumably first class. Is there anything that's hypocritical in that? Yeah, look, you can take that as a valid point there, friend. But look, we have mass markets in China. He, he's only part of the project that's going there. We, we have, we're nearly a global leader, I think, in the whole baby infant formula. Right, but, but the Green and Minister is going to China, here. who are responsible for 30% of all of global emissions. You know? Yeah, you're <laughs> would, not going to change the Chinese, friend, no matter who you send Right, but there. is it something that, you know, wouldn't he have to bring that up there just because of mm-hmm. his beliefs? You, you'd imagine so, you know. I don't well, look, that's Eamon Ryan. I mean, I'm no big fan of Eamon Ryan. To be honest with you, I think the man is a few sandwiches short of a picnic at the best time. I know. But, but he is what he is, and there's a need for a senior government minister to, right. to go along with these delegations. That's right. how it works. Okay. I mean, there was great gallery made of... Pippa Hackett, for example. Mm, yeah. Kenya and Tanzania, she was the one. So fine, there's no great trade with Kenya and Tanzania, or there's no great tourism. Right. But we have a massive foreign aid development program in this country, whether we like. And that, that'll upset the mob as well. They won't want to hear that, that we're sending money somewhere else. But it's something like 900 million a year. It's 0.3% of, of this gross national income. Right, so it's, it's considered. Not a good thing. Yeah. It's not a good thing that we might send someone and see how the money has been spent or how it, what value for money you see, or what the You see, I about. think that that would, would sort of, you know, please people then if somebody like like the minister in question came back with a report and said, look, here's what's happening here. I don't like that. I don't like that. We need to do this. And and then my trip was worthwhile. Well, maybe we give her, give her the benefit of the doubt that she's going to do that instead mm. of just automatically slating her for going there. All right. 
Willie, it's always good to talk to you. And thanks very much for coming on with us today and providing a bit of balance on the programme, which is great. Balance, man. Balance, that's what it's all about. Good Willie. Bye-bye to you. Bye-bye, bye-bye. That's uh, Willie speaking to us there about the St. Patrick's Day trips. Back in a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Welcome back to Tip Today, 83 311 It's time for our weekly uh, global politics segment uh, now and uh, politics and economics. Student uh, Thomas Conway joins me. Thomas, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. And always good to see you. Um, breaking news, I suppose, Mr. Biden will be in Ukraine today. What's, what's happening there? Yeah, BBC Alert just came up on my phone there. He's actually made a surprise visit to Kiev. So he's due, President Biden, due to make a three-day trip to Ukraine or to Poland over the next couple of days but he's dropped by Kiev to meet Vladimir Zelensky in the meantime more pledges of uh, of weaponry and ammunition and support for Ukraine uh, nothing nothing too drastic but it is mm. I suppose it, it is a, a show of uh, solidarity I guess as we approach the, the one year invasion the right. one year anniversary any news about the aeroplanes the fighter jets and stuff uh, he has so far I think stalled on that commitment yeah. uh, or he is certainly he's kept quiet I think the US is very conscious of what might be perceived as a radical escalation in terms of what support specifically it gives to Ukraine. So as I said, he has pledged more support, but it's kind of more of the same from what I've been reading, from what I can gauge. Interesting. The French are holding back on the fighter jets as well. French are holding back. I mean, you had over the weekend the Munich Security Conference, which is another one of these kind of showpiece global political events. You had Macron saying that... Russia needs to be defeated but not crushed, which I thought was a very interesting quote from him. Uh, In other words, I suppose, assuaging uh, the concerns that, you know, Vladimir Putin would be completely crushed and may resort to something drastic like like nuclear weapons. Macron has kind of towed that line. He's been treading very carefully on that patch. Yeah, interesting. Um, you and I off air, we've been talking about the the Kurds and the Kurdish population uh, over the last few weeks. And I asked you to do something uh, on it. I suppose it's even more topical now with what's happening in uh, Turkey and Syria following the earthquake. Yeah, then. I suppose a devastating earthquake, obviously, southern Turkey, northern Syria. But it is a region which is home to, to the Kurds. And mm. the Kurds are a group which, I suppose, almost disproportionately influence geopolitics, both in the Middle East and and further afield. I really enjoyed researching this piece, I have to say, because even I I just didn't realise the extent of the influence which they have over mm. the region. It's very interesting. Essentially, the Kurds are a, an ethnic minority, which are between 25 and 35 million Kurds. They inhabit a mountainous region straddling the borders of Turkey, Iraq, Syria, Iran and Armenia. So broadly speaking, that's the, the earthquake zone, the region which which was struck. They're the mm. fourth largest group in the Middle East, but they've never obtained a permanent nation state. So they've never had a country of their own. They're an indigenous people. Why is that? Is that the nomadic so, aspect to what they do? In the wake of in the wake of the First World War, the Treaty of Sevres made provision for a, a Kurdish state. It was to be called Kurdistan. Mm. It was then revised in a further treaty, and they were left effectively stateless. So, 
almost thrown out to an extent by the uh, by the international community. You could see why why they might feel very aggrieved by it. And mm. since that time, they have remained stateless. Now they've pushed for Kurdish independence, and that I think is the ultimate goal. But it still seems to be a far away prospect right. at but, the moment. But independence where? Because they're spread over so many countries. They are. And and this is the thing about, you know, you have Kurdish political parties. You can get lost in, I think, the alphabet soup. You have the PK, PKK, which effectively are the Kurdish political party in Turkey, the YPD, which are the Kurdish political party in Syria, yes. and so on and so forth. So you can get lost in kind of a yeah. an alphabet soup of different names. Well, but when the maps were redrawn in that area, was that really what displaced them, so to speak? Essentially, essentially, there was a realignment in terms of, after both world wars, I suppose, a realignment of the different different countries, and obviously following the breakup of the Soviet Union, you had a a lot of new borders, a lot of contentious new borders drawn, but the Kurds were never, I'm not Mm. sure, were never deemed uh, fit enough to have a state of their own. I'm not sure exactly the regions, and yet they 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 are almost like a, a, a nation state. They're their own ethnic. They have their own mm. ethnic identity. They played a, fro- a frontal role in the war against Islamic State mm. in the Middle East, and it really is interesting. Mm. I mean, in in 2013, the Islamic State turned its sights on on Kurdish enclaves that bordered territory under its control in northern Syria. It launched repeated attacks on them, but the attacks were repulsed or resisted by the Kurds. So they have shown themselves to be. Yeah. An incredible fighting force and in what, that region. What is their religious uh, ethos? So the majority of them are Sunni Muslim, but they're not all of the same of the same religion. There are actually a variety of different creeds which they worship. Now the majority are Sunni Muslim. They also speak a variety of different languages, and that's I suppose owing to the fact that they are scattered across a, a number of different countries. As I said, there Syria, uh, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Armenia. So you have them living little enclaves of curves, living in living in different regions. Turkey has the largest majority. So 15 to 20% of the Turkish population are Kurds and yet they are seen or perceived Mm. as a threat to... Why why is that? Well, to a certain extent, you can blame it on Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I know he's come in for criticism with the earthquake, but he has launched kind of repeated attacks, political attacks on the Kurdish minority in the country. He himself, I suppose, is an Islamic nationalist, a nationalist prime minister, uh, very, um, you know, determined to support Turkish independence and determined not to let the Kurds have a state of their own. He's currently in a, in a, I suppose, a dispute with Sweden over a number of Kurdish settlers there, whether they should be extradited back to Turkey. He perceives them as terrorists and he has effectively branded the Kurds as a terrorist group. So there is that Yes. tension, that, that tension exists and it exists not only in Turkey, it exists in, in the lights of Iraq as well uh, 15 to 20% of Iraq's population, also Kurdish around 7% 7 to 10% of the population of Syria, Kurdish as well, so you know significant mi- minorities in the various countries. Yeah, it's very interesting for many of us they might have come to our notice first of all with uh, Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq and I mean he he really you know was so precisely grateful to them you know. Yeah precisely and I suppose the Kurds have you know they have shown themselves to be an incredible fighting force mm-hmm. an incredibly resolute and determined fighting force that has been illustrated in their, their war against their campaign against Islamic State but also with the likes of Saddam Hussein and what I found fascinating is the fact that 
they have retained their their spirit of independence. They mm. haven't been subsumed into the various countries of the Middle East, part of the population. Despite not having a state of their own, they're still a, a very much a people of, of their own, right. their are own ethnic still, status. Are there still elements of them that are nomadic? Oh, yeah. Big time, big time. Right. And there there are elements of them which, I suppose, which migrate from place to place. You okay. know, they might have kind of a permanent settled residence in, in a certain region, uh, but certainly they move between move between Kurdish heartlands. Now, the, the big question which everybody will be asking is, is there any prospect that they will eventually get their own state, a Kurdistan, which is the name yes. given to the various regions? From what I've read, from what I've analysed, it seems a, a faraway prospect at this stage. It may come in time, but make make right. no mistake, it will have to be and, a different and president if it, in Turkey. Uh, just finally, before we move on, if it were to happen, where would it be? Well, I think the fact that the majority, that there's 15 to 20% of the Turkish population are Kurdish, it would probably be in that region in southern Turkey, northern Syria, that kind of earthquake region. They call it Anatolia, right. which is the historical name for the region. I think it's probably going to be around there as opposed to regions in Iraq or Iran. Right, but but what countries would agree to rewriting? Well, exactly. I'll, you know, the diplomatic yeah. and, and political repercussions of that would be it's significant. Huge, so, yeah. absolutely huge. All right, a sparkle of democracy in Southeast Asia, Thomas? Yeah, this is quite a good news story by, by all accounts. It's, it's the story of a resurgence in democracy, basically, in Southeast Asia. And it kind of... It feeds into the broader geopolitical dynamic between the US and China. So at the moment, we have this clash of superpowers, clash of giants between America on the one hand, which is a model of democracy, and China, which has its own authoritarian system. And in recent years, I mean, democracy, we know, hasn't necessarily flourished in the West. Mm. There have been repeated attacks on it by Russia and other nefarious actors. China, on the other hand, uh, has flourished with its own model of authoritarianism. It has managed to marry economic reform and kind of this repressive political system. Many have been surprised at that. And many countries across Asia would have looked at China and, and seen how their model has worked and said, well, look, maybe we can we can emulate them. So in recent years, we've had, you know, countries like the Philippines, their former president, Rodrigo Duterte, he kind of eroded the democratic architecture there. Likewise, the Cambodian leader, Hun Sen, even Narendra Modi in India has, has done his best to chip away at the democratic structure of that country. But we're now witnessing kind of chinks of light, chinks of democratic light mm. emerging across. And I'll just, I'll just give you a couple, of, a couple of examples. In the Philippines, we now have Ferdinand Bongbong Marcus. Now, a lot of people would have been worried when he came to power yeah that he would replicate, I suppose, the leadership style, the leadership uh, of his father, who was kind of a, a notorious autocrat. He hasn't. He's been surprisingly uh, reasonable in his first couple of months in office, and he's proven himself to be quite a deft administrator. You know, he has upheld the democratic uh, principles of, hmm. of the country. Sri Lanka is another place. Last July, we spoke about this in the programme, the Rajapaksa family, led by Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the former president, fled the country. He was kind of a notorious autocrat in his own right. And since then, Guta, uh, Sri Lanka has kind of been making this economic and political recovery. So, you know, prospect mm. of democracy there not far off. Furthermore, power, power alternated hands last December in Fiji. Uh, swift mm. transition of power there. 
a number of months before that, Malaysia had also undergone... But but not to pour cold water on, on uh, this. Um, the, we've seen this before, haven't we, with the third wave? You know, we've and, seen and this look before. look at what that came to. Yeah, and, and the third wave, just for people who aren't familiar, was kind of this golden advance of democracy yeah. in the 1980s. You had dictatorships falling... Uh, along with the Soviet Union, I suppose, and all these different democracies emerging. But in recent years, they they have been kind of uh, pedaled back, mm. pedaled backwards, reversed to a certain extent. Even in Europe, we see with countries like Poland and Hungary, which are suffering the effects, I suppose, yes. of a democratic decline or a democratic deficit. So really mm. interesting stuff. And that would be the worry for a lot of Southeast Asian countries. But it's worth, it's worth, and of course, actually, it, it's worth stating that some parts of Asia haven't realised or haven't seen democracy at all. They haven't been touched. And I'm talking about China, Laos, Vietnam. And then you have your own special case in North Korea, yes. which is, you know, a completely different model in itself. Now, so, I mean, like, there are there are positives and negatives of looking at this story. The, the positive is that authoritarianism, I suppose, at the moment is on the wane. It is declining. And there seems to be chinks of democratic light emerging across Asia. Now, whether that will sustain, uh, it's hard Mm. to know. But a lot of it is due to the fact that authoritarianism hasn't been delivering. People have looked to Xi Jinping and they've looked at Mm. his blunders managing the economy and things like that. And they've seen that he hasn't been getting the desired results. How much of the thumbs has been driven by young people? And I suppose I'm thinking of uh, Iran here with the students who are very, very active. Precisely. And and to to a slightly lesser extent, Myanmar. Yes. It's it's, it's exactly the second anniversary of the military coup in Myanmar, which was obviously a very negative event. They're still under military dictatorship. But there has been a fight back, a resurgence. There's now kind of a an alternative cross-party government there. And the, the support for that is being led by young people. We see a similar scenario unfolding in Iran. So it's like this next generation of people who, who I think are determined to invest themselves in democracy and to make democracy work. Now, whether their their enthusiasm will, will sustain remains to be seen, but at least there is hope. Uh, can we just briefly have a look at what's happening in uh, Peru if we go to South America now and again mass protests there's civil unrest to say the very least yeah there might be chinks of democracy emerging in in Asia but it's kind of a different story in South America at the moment so Peru we we don't know much about the country I think it's fair to say most Irish people it's home to almost 38 million or 38 million people so a sizable population there it rarely enters the headlines but in recent weeks a very hostile political situation has emerged. The nation is effectively being gripped by mass protest. It was triggered last December, December 7th, by the ousting of the now former president, Pedro Castillo. Castillo had himself, uh, the debts, the debt toll actually is, I have 48 people down here, but it has risen in in the week since. The protest began after yeah, Congress removed Pedro, President Pedro Castillo. He was arrested and is now being held in pre-trial detention. But a lot of his supporters in the south of the country are determined to to have him back in power. Essentially, Fran, this was about Castillo launching kind of his own self-coup, if you know what I mean. Uh, He tried to tried to manipulate Parliament in such a way as to favour himself 
uh, to favour the policies he wanted to put through. But he was in danger of impeachment as well, was he? He not? was in danger of impeachment. So, yeah. you know, he is, he's not necessarily, he could be perceived just as well as the bad actor in this. Yeah. Now, the current president, Dina Buluarte, uh, she took over as Peru's sixth president in five years following Castillo's departure. She has said herself that her position isn't tenable and the unrest, I suppose, is is illustrating that election, an election is the key to this scenario. An election, if right. a solution is to be found, it will come in the form of an election. Right, but uh, there's corruption all, all over government? There's corruption there, yeah. all over and we're also suffering, Peru is also suffering the legacy of kind of a a bloody armed conflict, a two-decade armed conflict between guerrillas in the south of the country. An estimated 69 people were killed in that. So, you know, that is very much echoes of that still there, uh, still there in the country. Now, the election is due to be held in April 2024. Really and truly, it will need to happen sooner if mm-hmm. a solution is to be found. We only have about a minute and a half left, but what should we be looking out for uh, over the coming week or so, uh, Thomas? What's, what's Well, happening? I mentioned the Munich Security Conference, and I suppose this happened over the weekend, mm-hmm. but it's still worth mentioning anyway. Various world leaders converging on the Bavarian capital, Munich, uh, to give kind of showpiece speeches. You had Kamala Harris saying that Russia had committed crimes against humanity. You, well, I mentioned Macron earlier on. Rishi Sunak was there. He's been a bit preoccupied with the Northern Ireland Protocol, but he still made his way to Munich and you had Chancellor Olaf Scholz. So that was, an ex- that was a big international event. Mm. But like all these international events, it's not necessarily the public pronouncements or the public statements that are most important. Right. It's the behind-the-scenes conversations. So, and you and know, that's where peace in Ukraine might emerge from, is it those precisely, smoky it back is rooms? Smoky back rooms, yeah. exactly, with... with diplomats and world leaders talking in conversations behind the scenes. If peace is ever to emerge, it will emerge in those Very good. Can we just mention before we go about uh, a sturgeon calling it a day? Surprise for an awful lot of surprise people. Surprise yeah. for an awful lot of people. Yeah, I was surprised myself. So, you know, I was looking at her, her kind of profile. And we, t- we might take a look at the politics of Scotland in a yeah. further show when the leadership battle hots up. Very interesting. And yeah. no doubt it will. But, I mean, she's been a member of Holyrood the Scottish Parliament since 1999. She took over as First Minister from Malik Salmond in 2014 following the unsuccessful independence referendum. But she has been a fierce advocate of Scottish independence. Yes. You mentioned there with your, with your uh, previous guest the fact that she felt she wasn't the woman to kind of heal that divide mm. uh, between Scottish nationalists and unionists yes. within, within and that Scotland. appeared to be behind? That appeared to be behind the decision, from what I could gauge anyway. Yeah. I mean, she now she must be said she led the SNP to a number of election victories, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a number of significant coups. They're the largest Scottish party in the Parliament of Westminster. She's had quite a successful political career. But the next general election will effectively be a de facto referendum on Scottish independence and she obviously feels she's not the woman to be able to bridge or heal that divide in Scotland at this present moment. Right, and we're just about out of time but you were anxious to mention that uh, Norway warning of growing importance of Russian nuclear deterrent in yeah, the exactly. Arctic as a couple well. Of, yeah, exactly. Uh, a couple of Russian ships now capable of carrying tactical nuclear weapons. It's a further warning sign to the West, really. Oh, Thomas, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Frank. Uh, great to chat to you as always. Uh, news and information is coming up. Tip today.
with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. And welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. Now, some of your text and uh, WhatsApp, Anya's taking issue with me, and she says, Fran, that man has a right to speak his mind. Why should you side for Eamon Ryan? I didn't realise that I was siding for Eamon Ryan. In fact, I was making the point that he's a carbon footprint uh, by flying first class to China and Singapore and the like. Um, was considerable. And in fact, I asked, was there an element of hypocrisy there? So there you are now on you. Um, somebody else saying, tell Willie that the rate of 4% unemployment is far from true. Wake up, Willie, it says. If you only work uh, one day, we can claim job seekers for the other days. You were uh, on back to education, etc. You are not included in the 4%. Uh, unemployment rates are massive. Trust me, I know. What does Willie work at? And what, well, you see, we don't ask people personal stuff like that. I mean, people come on with an opinion, and, and that's fine. And in fairness, Willie provided some uh, balance to that particular um, conversation that's uh, been going on since last uh, Friday as well. I totally agree with that man, says somebody else. Uh, Fran, in relation to the VAT rate for hospitality, uh, that crowd don't care about ripping us off. And the price has soared in the last year, regardless of the low VAT rate, says Kay. Now, on a different topic altogether, congenital heart disease is the most common birth defect worldwide. And between 500 to 600 babies are born with the condition in Ireland every year. It arises when a child's heart does not form correctly during pregnancy. Now, Rachel Lundigan is a temporary mum to 12-year-old Izzy. And Izzy became very ill indeed when she was uh, three years old. And I'm delighted to say that Rachel is with me in studio. Good morning to you, Rachel. Good morning. Uh, good to see you today and thanks for, for coming in to me. Would you, would you tell me about Izzy and how you discovered that she was ill? Yeah, so um, I had Izzy in 2010. Everything was normal. Pregnancy, birth, everything, growing, feeding, eating, the whole lot. And then she became quite unwell summer of 2013. Just kind of I suppose cold and flu symptoms to begin with, very lethargic on and off and we were questioning as to what could be wrong up and down to the GP a few times and eventually we um, ended up in the, the hospital here in Clamel where they were trying to figure out what could be wrong mm. so obviously the usual maybe viral um, did um, lumbar punctures, checking bloods, the whole lot and she just kept spiking temperatures. They couldn't figure it out. They said the next step was onto infectious diseases in Crumlin, um, in Dublin. So um, we were waiting for a bed to become free there. So we were 10 days in the hospital here. And then eventually over a bank holiday weekend, we got the call that there was a bed available in Crumlin for, to investigate further what was wrong. So we went up and at the time I had a six-month-old as well. So basically left her here in Tipperary care, um, walked out the front door and our lives were just turned upside down. I didn't come back inside my front door for seven weeks. Wow. Um, we got to Crumlin and we were just put on like a regular 
ward, they were starting to run tests and by the following day we were brought for x-rays, um, ECGs and an echo, which is like an ultrasound of the heart. And while we were in that room, um, we had someone perform the procedure and they said, that's fine, go back down, a consultant will be on to you. Within, I'd say, a couple of hours, not even, we were called back up to that room um, with, at, we didn't know at the time, but a cardiologist had come at this point. So it um, wasn't just the technician anymore. And his name was Dr. David Coleman. And he said, we we think we know what's wrong with your daughter. Um, he showed us an image on the screen of her heart and I don't know if anybody else, when you're pregnant and you look at ultrasounds and they say, can you see this? You say, oh, yeah, but like you can't really make it out. Yeah. But you could make out this image and there is um, something kind of flapping around. He said, well, that should not be there. It is stopping her valve from closing, her, her, her aortic valve from closing properly. So basically the blood that gets filtered back into your heart needs to obviously get refreshed, pumped back out around the body in the simplest of terms. This valve was not closing, so the blood was flowing back down. It was enlarging her heart and it was under severe pressure. Um, this was called endocarditis. Um, they didn't believe that stage she was born with it, but um, maybe just came from like that, an infection in your mm. throat. They were starting to run tests on that. They said we should not, they could not perform surgery um, as it was still like a live infection that they would do intravenous antibiotics for maybe 10 days um, that she would get a line put in. Um, we didn't know what to do. I sent my husband home to the six month old said, God, we're going to be here for another while. You need to go home and fix that up. And um, overnight, she just took a turn. I was moved from the regular ward to the heart ward which at the time is not the lovely heart ward um, that's there now. Um, and then during that night again, I was moved by morning to um, ICU-1 with Izzy. She was, at the time, I didn't know, but she was going into heart failure um, very quickly. So my husband then, James, rushed back up to Dublin. We got to kind of talk to her before she was... We They said they would... Um, intubate her mm. to let her body rest and cope and try to get some antibiotics into her. That lasted for maybe, I'd say, less than 12 hours. She had to be rushed, rushed to theatre in the middle of the night and um, her surgeon then was Jonathan McGuinness and he put in a tissue valve into her... So this was full open heart surgery? Full open heart surgery, yes. Right. And they... The procedure they had hoped to do, if they had gotten time, they couldn't. They couldn't do. So they used a tissue valve to replace her aortic valve. Um, but like she was three, she was small. They had to make do, make fit, make a fit. So um, they did their best. Um, they tried to take her off the lung heart bypass machine twice, and her body just was not coping. So the only thing they could do was um, place her on, um, leave her on the ECMO machine. Um, which is a life support. Mm. And she went to PICU2 then. So it's a ICU2. It's very um, specialised ICU for heart children. Um, there's never really more than maybe six or seven children in there at a time. Yes. It's one-to-one basis with the amazing, amazing PICU nurses. And um, so the, she stayed on that machine for about f- five days. And... 
obviously it was a good thing and a bad thing because the longer she was on it, the more her body had time to heal. But the longer she was on it, the more chance there was of blood clots forming and other issues arising. So it was it was a mm. it was a scary time. And did you tell me it was very hard for her to heal from the open heart surgery as well? Was that she couldn't? They couldn't close her chest after the surgery. Um, that was the thing. So that's why then they placed her on the ECMO where they. They basically left her incision, her opening open for the next few days and then they started the procedure mm. of closing it. Once mm. she came off ECMO, they started to then close her. So, um, but I mean, after that, she really, really like bounced back. She's an amazing child. Um, we obviously did stay there. They had to then treat her with her antibiotics to fight the endocarditis mm. and um, make sure that her body was getting rid of the infection so we were still dealing with the ID team and then the cardiac team up there um, while we were in ICU the new um, heart ward actually opened while we were there so we came out to an amazing state of the art ward where yes. fabulous and the care was amazing so we stayed there for seven weeks we got home just just before Christmas back home then to my six month old Ruby and um, we would go then for six monthly checkups and she, they did explain to us that she was going to need further surgery as the valve they put in, it didn't properly fit, but it was doing the job. So because she, she was so small. Yes, and yes. it was all very rushed. You know, yeah. it was an emergency surgery. Yeah. Um, I think the whirlwind of it and knowing that she was going to need further assistance was just very, kind of, we left our house. We didn't know what was happening. This all happened. Then we just arrived back into our home. We didn't know who to talk to, what had happened really and I suppose that's when we reached out to Heart Children Ireland um, and popped them an email I think at first said we don't know, do we come under this umbrella with ye, as far as we're aware she wasn't born with this so mm. is it congenital do you think that we could be members and you could help us and they said absolutely this definitely you come in come with us we will mind you right. we will look after you they offer psychology services they offer play therapy um which we used on more than one occasion um family days where i suppose you're with your peers you're with people that understand what's happening because that's the thing with um children with heart conditions it's it's non-visible like you would never guess if i lined up my three children here you wouldn't be able to pick from them which right. one of them actually has the heart yeah, condition. Of course, yeah. You know, it's just, it, it's it's a good thing and it's scary in the same way because you can't see inside so you never know, you know. I suppose. Is there a constant anxiety there, Rachel, though, where Izzy is concerned? She's 12 now. She's 12 she? yeah. now and she since has, has had a second open heart surgery. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. she had it in 29, uh, 2020. Right. So, um, yeah, there, there, there is, there is that factor Um especially as she's not corrected, we'll say. She still has to go for her checkups. They have to check. They will decide. And she will need further surgery. Will she? Yes. So th this is part of growing. Is that is that what it's the issue is? It's part of growing is and I suppose the damage that was done at the time okay. um, has to be monitored. So um, they, in 2020, in January 2020, they they did the Ross procedure, which is what they would had hoped to do in 2013. And they took out her aortic valve and the the tissue one and they replaced it with her pulmonary valve so they took it from one side part over and now they she has an artificial pul pulmonary valve which won't grow with her so it will need to be replaced but m 
medicine advances very mm. quickly as we were reassured and um, what they say now they might be able to do might even be different course, in yes. four or five years. And is she on constant medication? As no, well? she no. is on no medication. Isn't that incredible? Uh, she was on medication for a little while between maybe 2014 and getting her surgery in 2020. Mm. She needed um, a medication to help alleviate the pressure on her heart. But um, no, she is on no medication. As I said, she can partake in anything she wants. Now, not competitively. She gets winded, yes. she gets tired, but she knows her own limits and she's a very chatty girl like myself. And people yeah. say, oh, she sits down and chats away with us. But that's Izzy's way of coping with, I suppose, she will know when to take a break. It'll just come, nat- looks like it's a natural thing, but she will sit down and have the chat. Right. So she manages her own condition, essentially. She, she does, yes, yeah. for now, definitely. Yeah. And um, we've um, always like that kind of, I suppose, made it a positive thing like that with her yeah. children they do um, a charity calendar every year I've put her forward and she's managed to get picked and has gone for photo shoots and this year she's on to December month and we've always tried to use it as a positive tool for her that you know yes you have to be aware that you have a heart condition but it's not the be all and end all for Izzy you know yes. and like she does get special treatment then I suppose for that like she got taken off for this photo shoot we get to go to their annual Christmas party which we wouldn't be at those things mm, only mm. for Izzy but the other two now my nine year old Ruby and my six year old Lola they get the benefits of that yes, too so <laughs> we try to look at it positively The, um, the uh, conference uh, happened yes. over, over the weekend in Dublin as well where the um, the work of heart children was concerned yes. um, you didn't attend that I didn't attend this one what, Why? That was for, for older kids was it? It was yes they're they're Heart children deal with younger children and children that are progressing onto the matter. Like Izzy will also go from crumbling to the matter because, as I said, she she won't be, you know, say corrected fully. Yes. So this conference and other occasions, they're very informative for people going forward, and it's definitely something we will be attending. And for Izzy, as I said, as she gets older, we won't be maybe going to the Christmas parties. We will be bringing her to to these things instead. Yes. So um, I suppose it'll be a natural progression for us for time. We don't want to bombard her just. Yeah. At this minute, Do, does she ever get frustrated with? I mean, you say you know she gets tired every yeah. so often, and you know, twelve-year-olds—they're busy generally and they're active and all. Yes. Does she get frustrated at all with the condition? No, I don't think at the minute she does. When in 2019, when there was a lot of appointments on the run-up to the surgery, I think she found all of that very overwhelming, and she was scared because she was a lot older than three, and she knew she was going for open-heart surgery, and she was very nervous and scared, but. We, we try to show her, you know, that look at her. She's done this before. Mm. She can do this again. Um, that it's natural to be scared and have questions. And we always yes. reassure her to come to us if... Because Izzy does have a scar on her on her chest and she's a young woman. And yeah. going forward and even for her appointments going forward when they perform echoes and ECGs, you know, we just try to say you can come and talk to us and we try to keep that line of communication Of course, open. yeah. And are you aware at this point whether this may have happened in pregnancy but maybe wasn't spotted along the way or, or how how is that, Rachel? They did say to us um, the last time, so in 2019 when it came time to go for more surgery, that there is a possibility, maybe in hindsight, that it was something that was there. She could have had some kind of a condition with her heart and that's why maybe this, this bacteria got 
became did so much damage. Mm. So there might have been a slight flaw, I suppose, there yes. to begin with. Nothing that was picked up on. As I said, she was never a sick child, so there was no reason to investigate. And she, she thrived as a baby. And, oh yeah, yeah, thrived, and even to this day, she just thrives. Yeah, yeah she. It's I had never even heard her be sick or vomit yeah, yeah. until that night. She. Became went into heart failure. At, I didn't at know three years of age. At three years yeah, of age, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the other two kids, they're all fine. As, yes, as far as we're aware. Anyway. Yeah, yes, no, absolutely. No and they don't treat her any differently either. Do so. they not? No, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> you say that with a smile. Yeah. So I guess is there a bit of argy bargy oh, that goes three, on? Three it? little girls now. So <laughs> oh God, yeah. God bless us. I know. Yes. Um, so the next step for you then is how? How many years time are we talking about for the the next procedure? Again, we don't know. This is the anticipation okay. that happens every time um, her checkups come right. you know you don't know so it depends on her rate of growth i suppose yes. as well is that is yeah that so that's what they monitor we are at yearly checkups now which is is a good thing we suppose we be able to push out from six monthly so it's usually summertime now um so we don't know till you go and they yeah. listen and they look and um her her consultant now is um dr pierre paolo bizzario he was actually a speaker at the conference and mm. he deals with the children that are moving on to the matter as well so it's it's nice that she'll have the same hopefully consultants the whole way through very now. good indeed uh, ju- just finally rachel yeah. to to families out there who might have got a recent diagnosis or might have a suspicion yes. about a heart what 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 do you say to them um, I say definitely reach out to um, the Heart Children Ireland. As I said, they are a great source of comfort, and the psychology service that are there is invaluable. And yes. going to these family days, even if it's just a luncheon, you it gives you hope. I suppose because the fear as a parent of any condition, if you're told yeah. your, your child is unwell in any way, it's so scary. But um, I suppose it just gives you hope you see from babies all the way up to now like that teens, adults are living with these conditions so I suppose, yeah, just reach out and speak to somebody that has knowledge I suppose. Well you tell the story extremely eloquently oh. indeed Rachel and thank you so much for coming into us today we yeah. wish Izzy the very best and the rest of your family Yes, thank well. you. Thank, thank thanks you very, very much indeed Rachel It's uh, 21 past 11 right now we'll be right back Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. Now, of course, we're with you every single weekday morning from nine. And uh, Liam Brown spoke to me uh, about uh, the DJ Carey controversy about the debt write-off from AIB and uh, the public outcry, indeed, following the revelations over the weekend. Here's just a little of what he had to say to me. If you were to apply normal economic principles to it, you certainly wouldn't have let somebody to get into that amount of debt in the first place, and you wouldn't write off that amount of debt in the end. I mean, surely a bank, a bank that that gave any loans to that extent would have assets which would back up the loans. I know if any of your listeners, including myself, when we have a mortgage, mm-hmm. we get a 
we, we get a loan based on the value of the asset that we're putting the mortgage against and if yes. we don't pay our loan the asset gets taken off us and, and your deeds are, are, are in the bank vault <coughs> yeah that's it that's how it normally works in yeah. this case it goes back to what I imagine people are very angry about it just seems that there's one rule for a certain circle of people in the country and there's another rule for the vast majority of the rest of us. Do you know, Liam, what is the criteria for write-off? Or how, how does that work? Or is it just ad hoc? It is uh, to my, it is very ad hoc. It is yeah. very simply that you should sit down with a bank um, once you get into a certain level of debt and you'd put whatever assets you have on the table. I mean, there's an awful lot of people going through this and I can imagine that there is a listening to this they're banging their heads off walls. Yeah. Um, friend, because you know you go through an insolvency process, and the bank will they'll practically send you out. When they start to practically, they will send you out uh, documents, which as much as tell them how much you're eating, how much you're spending on mm-hmm. uh, petrol to, to get into your car, how much you're spending on your phone, and you will have to document every single penny that you have. And they will take as much as they can off you and leave you with a very very basic um, level of existence or subsistence or what, whatever you want to call it, and make sure that they get their money back off you. I'm sure. Those businesses have closed in the past 12 months, an awful lot of businesses are closing. And again, the banks will be forced in there to get as much as they can back out of the business people. Yes. Um, but in this case, one, to allow such a debt to be run up in the first place, seems crazy without having it backed by, by tangible assets, is what they're called. And secondly, to allow that debt to run on for that length of time to the point where you practically, look, that's a, that's a full write down. I mean, 60,000 euro at the end of yeah. nine, nine and a half million euro. It's a pittance. It's less than 1%. Um, but there is no... And, and this is the problem, and you're going to see um, he's been called in, or the, the bank are being called in front mm. of an Oireachtas committee. And I really don't know what they're going to say, apart from they'll probably solve it off by saying they don't want to talk about individual cases. Liam Brown speaking to me just after 9 o'clock this morning. Now, glad to be joined by one of our listeners, John. John, good morning to you. Good morning, Frank. Good to talk to you today. You have some views, John, on the current energy and fuel crisis. Uh, tell, tell me about that, John. Well, it's more about the man responsible, Eamon Ryan. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll just start with his policy that we shouldn't give out this new cost of living support till the autumn. Yes. When it's needed. If you ask anybody who is on a low budget or low income or the OAPs, carers, etc., that time is actually now. Come autumn, hopefully the world will have turned around again and cost of living will be a lot cheaper and we won't need another cost of living increase. So, yeah, look after the people who need it when they need it. Right. Now, his point is that, you know, if we delay it until the autumn there, uh, the, it will be colder months there at that uh, point. And, in fact, his sentiment was backed by, by Fianna Fáil in recent days as well. So it's not just a case of it's, it's the Greens. Yeah, unfortunately, um, there's one thing I, I, I often think about, like something that we used to have in the old days. It seems to me that it's the old, old story. You do as I say, not as I do. Mm. Mm. Right? Now, like, Eamon is trying to stop fossil fuel burning in Ireland. And if you go through all the facts of history and go through what you can see at the moment, in Europe, a lot of the countries are returning full-time to coal. Germany at the moment is now returning to 6.9 gigawatts on coal. Mm. Whereas we're still being told, even the poor farmers up in Donegal, stop everything. You know, you're not a fuel, coal, turf. Well, well, I suppose what's happening in Germany is driven by the fact that they put such an emphasis on energy from Russia and uh, look at what happened there. So, Oh, yeah, but we've put our emphasis on outside of ourselves as well. I know we're going... Mm. 
head along with wind farms, but we're not there yet. Mm. You know, so we're still paying out big money to these profitable companies. Mm. But we won't we won't get charged them any extra money for they might leave us. We'd be frightened in case they walk away, knowing that they never would. You know. Yeah, that's interesting. But even where the 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 wind farms, I mean, I I believe that the success of that would be based on offshore. And we just didn't move fast enough, John, where that's concerned. I mean, we're years away from that. I know, but it's the same in everything in aspect in Ireland, isn't it? When you talk about it for 20 years, mm. then when we've discussed it for 20 years, we'll get a committee together and discuss for another 10. Yes. Then a committee to discuss what the committee done. Yeah. Then we'll put the planning, and by the time it's all done, it's already 100 years out of date. Yes, and then we'll have a task force as to why it was delayed in the first place. I mean, it's complete nonsense, really, you know? It is, yeah. You know, and... Just to basically to finish up, again, you covered it a bit earlier this morning in your conversation. Mm. You know, our Minister for the Greens, he's flying all the way to Sydney, etc., etc., etc. Now, I didn't realise he was flying, flying first class. I assume he probably might fly. Well, no, that's my assumption. Uh, that is, yeah. I, I can't see him spending, I, I don't know how many hours it is to China now, but I can't see him in, in the economy for, for that length of Not time. Not in the 2019 no. Yeah. But... I just looked, Googled up some information on footprints for flying. Mm. To fly from Dublin to Sydney, the footprint is 14.6 tonne carbon. Right. And can you make a comparison for me on that? What? Yeah. The average household in Ireland, if they were to use 5 kilos of coal per night, 365 days a year, would have one tonne footprint. Wow. Well, and so, give, give me that initial figure again for, for the flight. For the flight, it's 14.6 tonne. That's a direct flight with only one stop, Dublin to Sydney and stopping in Dubai. Right. Now, it's Simon Coveney that is going to that part of the world. Um, Eamon Ryan is going to Singapore and uh, China. Right. So I guess, you know, you're talking about similar enough distance. Uh, there. Same, same distances, you yeah. know. Yeah. But it's just, you know, he can tell us how we're, we must cut it back. Yes. What's wrong with what you and I have to do? We have WhatsApp, FaceTime, all these other apps where you can face each other. Now, Willie was on with me earlier on, and he said that people who hold the views that you obviously hold, that it's populist old stuff, and that it's the same ding-dong every single year, and these guys need to go to these places to promote Ireland, and it's a unique opportunity that other countries don't have. I can see what they're saying. Yes, it's lovely to be invited to the White House, Mm. right? But, and I know that they do state that the figures that they produce from conversations abroad brings in millions. Yes. Right? But if you think about it, if we didn't actually turn up for these and we did just contact all the managing directors of all these various companies, how much of a difference would there be? You see, I don't know. Would it be cheaper to bring these guys when they're visiting Ireland to look at plants, etc., and give them a tour of the town? Right. I, I, I don't know, I, but I have to say, because I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't say so, because I, I, I've always believed the old face-to-face thing is so important, John. But, you right. know, you know um, there's an argument to be made for, for both sides, uh, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting that um, uh, Eamon Ryan is going to China, who are responsible for 30% of all global emissions. <laughs> yeah. Now, I didn't want to bring that one up, but as soon as you opened the door for me... <laughs> yeah. 30% lovely. Yeah. Then you've got India, next door neighbour nearly, mm. Yeah. in the same category. Yeah. And then we have poor little old Ireland that yeah. comes in at 
not 10% or 5 or 1, but we're down in the point, not something range. Of global emissions. Of global right. emissions. Right. But we're being targeted. Our farmers, who are the lifeblood of this country, or lifeblood of the country, I should say, mm. you know, breathe their cattle, they work all hours, all weathers. Yes. Right? We're going to have, we might have to cull all the cattle in Ireland. Um, hello, like, what world are we living in? Well, we won't have to cull them all, but there certainly seems to be a move towards uh, a certain amount of the herd being be, being uh, gotten rid of at some some C- stage or other. Yeah. Anyway, John, I must leave it there. But thank you so much for your contribution this morning. Great to chat to you. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank Take you, Carmela. Good. So that's John speaking to us today. All right, then it's time for sport, and delighted to be joined from our Nina studio by our sports editor Paul Carroll. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Fran. How are you? Uh, very well indeed. Good to talk to you. Let us begin with hurling, I suppose. Um, first of all, and that uh, defeat to Kilkenny. Yeah, Fran, I suppose ultimately a defeat to, a defeat to Kilkenny in the Dylan Quirka um, Foundation charity match, I suppose, on Sunday afternoon in Semple Stadium. But I suppose that it was an overall victory um, in general because of uh, the good attendance that was there and the whole occasion. And um, don't have a figure on the money raised yet, but... Mm. Uh, I would imagine if it was, I think it was twenty euro a ticket. I'd imagine there was at least five thousand there. That's you know a hundred grand off the top of my wow. head. So you know, um, and the more people buying the streams and the non-attendance tickets and and things like that. So um, a brilliant occasion. But yeah, Tipperary were beaten four twenty to twenty five points on the day. Um, a lot of uh, changes, of, of course, on both teams and lots of subs in and out. But uh, Mark Keogh played really well for Tip. Uh, got a few really nice points, especially in the first half. And I suppose a positive news for all Tipperary Hurling supporters was that uh, Connor Stakelham uh, returned from injury late on in the game and came on returning from uh, the hamstring injury he suffered against Leash. So hopefully he will be uh, back to full fitness soon enough. But yeah, a good crowd there and uh, overall a, a great occasion um, in, in uh, aid, Very I good. suppose, of the Dylan Quirk Foundation. And uh, to our footballers then, and again defeat there. Yeah, unfortunately, the footballers fell to their third straight defeat in the league. Uh, this was on Saturday evening in Semple Stadium. They were playing against Antrim. It finished up Antrim one nineteen, Tipperary fourteen points. Um, it's it's three defeats in a row, and they've they've four games left. Um, and to stay up, they'll probably they'll definitely need to win two, but probably even three games. So it's a big uphill battle. But I suppose the the issue with the footballers at the minute is they've just been so unlucky with injuries. Like I could name seven or eight lads that probably would be starting that are injured, and you know some of them are the vice captain Stephen O'Brien and the captain Connor Sweeney are both out. Sean O'Connor didn't play the other day. Um, uh, Connell Kendi, Mark Russell, Connor Cadell. You know, so when you're missing kind of a lot of these players, it's, mm, it's always going to be an uphill battle. So um, they're they're struggling at the minute. Positive news for third of CBS though. Yeah, third of CBS, friend. They were obviously beaten in the Hearty Cup final a number of weeks ago against Cashel, but they were in the uh, Crow Cup, so this is the All-Ireland series. They are in the Crow Cup uh, quarterfinal over the weekend. They beat Dublin's uh, Cloche to own at 217 to 214 uh, in the All-Ireland quarterfinal. So it sets up the two semi-finals now in the Crow Cup. Uh, presentation, Athenry against Thurlis CBS and Cashel Community School play St. Kieran's College in Kilkenny. And uh, just, I suppose, sticking with kind of uh, schools and uh, colleges hurling, mm. uh, well done to MIC Thurlis St. Patrick's. They beat uh, Trinity in the Rhine Cup. So this is the, the tier below the Fitzgibbon Cup, the second tier of college hurling. They won that. Uh, they beat uh, Trinity 17 points to 10 in 
the final so lots of Tipperary involvement there and Keane Tracy the manager doing well and then of course the Fitzgibbon Cup UL beat NUIG in the final at 419 to 113 and Brian O'Mara of Holy Cross uh, captaining the team to the uh, Fitzgibbon Cup for the second year in a row and uh, Gerold O'Connor Conor O'Dwyer Reese Shelley and Keane Darcy were all involved there um, from the, the Tipperary contingent for UL Very good indeed the Tipperary senior camogie team they got off to a flying start didn't they? Yeah really good stuff and a really busy weekend of, of sport in, in Tipperary must be said and yeah the camogie uh, Dennis Kelly of course, the new Tipperary senior camogie manager, he was in charge for his first competitive game. They played at league champions Galway in the rag on Saturday in Division 1 of the league. And Tipperary had a good 4-9 to 1-9 win. And the goals for Tip came from Karen Kendi, Roisin Howard, Courtney Ryan and Anna Fahey, who scored off the bench late on. So, yeah, great start to uh, Tipperary's uh, league campaign. And it's going to be a very competitive league campaign. They're going to be playing all, all, all the top teams. So it was a, a great start to things on uh, Saturday afternoon. Our ladies footballers didn't fare as well. Though. No, unfortunately, they'd won their first three games of the season going really well. And uh, unfortunately, they, they lost to Leash on Sunday. Um, it was just by a point for a finish. It was Leash 112, Tipperary 35, so just a single point. Um, so they were defeated there. But off to a really good start. They're, they have their only away game next weekend against uh, Monaghan. But uh, probably disappointing one, I suppose, for Peter Creedon's side, uh, just losing by a single point late on uh, to Leash there on Sunday afternoon. We were busy in soccer over the weekend as well. Yeah, I have to mention my old uh, team, our Rovers. They won the uh, NTNDL Premier Division. So this is the uh, North Tip uh, District League, the Premier Division. They beat uh, Loch Derg 4-1 um, up in Portro and Shouldice Park. Three goals from Ron Maroney and one from Kevin O'Halloran. Uh, seals the win for the Portro side. It's their first uh, Premier Division title since 1996. So uh, there was big celebrations around Port uh, last night and probably into today as well, I would imagine. And then elsewhere in soccer over the weekend, uh, the two Tipperary teams two Tipperary teams were in the Munster Junior Cup last 16. Uh, Peak Villa beat Cove side Springfields 3-0. And it was Dale Lucknan, Mikey Wade and Jack Ryan Casey with the goals for the third side. And unfortunately, Nina were beaten 1-0 by Avondale United in their last 16 tie. So it was just one Tipperary team left in the Munster Junior Cup and that's uh, Peak Villa. What did we have in rugby over the weekend? In rugby, Fran, yeah, the AIL was back in action. All three Tipperary teams uh, were playing over the weekend on Saturday in Division 2A. Neen Ormond had a bonus point win over Old Crescent. They beat them in Neen at 28 points to 7. And Cashel drew 10-all at home to Dolphin. And uh, those results mean Nina actually leapfrogged Cashel now into fourth place uh, with five games to go. And it's the top four that uh, go through to the playoffs. So Cashel are currently in fifth. And Nina, I think, are just a point ahead of them in fourth. And there's only about four points between uh, fourth place and uh, first place. So really competitive last five games in Division 2A. And then in Division 2C, Clonmel continued their good form. They beat Ballina at home 34 points to 12. So they're now seven points clear in fourth place in Division 2C. So uh, with uh, five games to go, they're looking pretty good to uh, maybe get a playoff spot uh, this season. Great stuff indeed. Success for some of our athletes as well. Yeah, just a, a very uh, broad weekend of sport Indeed. in Tipperary. And uh, there's even more things that I don't have mentioned down, but um, I suppose uh, in athletics, we had the National Senior Indoor Track and Field Championships over the weekend. And we had uh, two Tipperary women uh, finishing first and third in the uh, 200 meter final. So Charlene Mosley of uh, Newport Athletic Club, she set a new personal best, finishing first and actually defending her national title. And she ran a time of 23.61 seconds. And uh, just behind her in third place was 
uh, Moyne Athletics Club's Katie Bergen. She came third and the new personal best for her as well of 24.54 seconds. So at uh, Tipperary Athletics uh, going in the right direction as well. Very good indeed. What have we to look forward to uh, GA first of all? Yeah, really busy weekend. Yeah. Next weekend, Fran, we have uh, lots of uh, all kind of the four or five Tipperary uh, inter-county teams to, um, in action next weekend. We'll start with the Hurlers. They're up in Dublin in Crow Park. They're playing Dublin on Saturday at 5pm and that's in the National Hurling League. And then the Footballers are away to Longford. That one's on Sunday at 2pm. And then on the uh, Ladies Footballers, as I mentioned earlier, they're away to Monaghan. That's on Sunday at 2pm. But the Senior Camogie team are away to Dublin. That's in Parnell Park on Saturday at 2 o'clock. So if you're up in Dublin uh, for the Hurlers, the uh, uh, Tip Senior Camogie team are playing in Parnell Park. Just about a 10-minute drive. That's at 2pm. Mm. And the Hurlers are at 5pm. So probably be able to go to both. And the uh, Junior Camogie team start their league campaign away to Cork on Saturday at 1pm. Very good. More rugby action over the weekend as well. Yeah, the AIL continues uh, next weekend. Neen Ormond are away to Dolphin, Cashel are away to Ballymena and Clonmel are away to Bangor. All those games on Saturday. And of course, we have the uh, Irish under-20s back in action on Friday uh, Friday evening against Italy. So uh, Lockmore's Brian Gleeson uh, will likely be in action, you would imagine, in that game. So we'll be uh, keeping an eye out on that as well. Always good to talk to you, Paul. Thanks very much indeed. Good morning to you. Thanks, That's our sports editor, Paul Carroll, live from our Nina studio this morning. We'll take a break. Back with more. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Welcome back to Tip Today. Now, social dancing is for many people their main social outlet to meet friends and uh, to get some exercise as well in convivial surroundings. However, being able to dance, as you can imagine, is vital. So joining me now is well-known social dance teacher, Yvonne O'Neill. Good morning to you, Yvonne. Good morning, Fran. Lovely to see you. I haven't seen you for, for an age because of COVID and all of that. Um, dancing, uh, can everybody dance, do you think, Yvonne, if they, if they get the right coaching? Yes, I think so. Uh, people will dance to different levels, Yeah, but everyone can learn. Right, okay. How to dance. And the age doesn't matter either, no, does it? No, no. I mean, young people, yes, when, when I get young people in the class, I show them a couple of steps and off down the floor. Right. You know? Um, as you get older, it gets a little bit harder. Yeah. But no, definitely everyone can learn to dance. You're teaching all over the the area, like yes. Waterford, down to Cork, in fact. And of course, you're in Feathered tonight, aren't Absolutely, you? Absolutely, yes. Feathered tonight. Yeah. Um, John's Well in County Kilkenny tomorrow night. I'm in Butterfant in County Cork on Wednesday night. And Thursday, I'm in Mooncoyne. You also teach for the dreaded first dance, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Poor yes. old devils who have to, to learn their first dance. Yeah, yes. You do that too. Yes, yeah, mm. that's another aspect of it, um, which I love, yeah. because I think it's something that people put so much time and effort into um, their wedding, mm. and sometimes they can forget about the first dance, yes. and maybe it's, you know, 
the the last thought. Yeah. I've had people come in, you know, with a week to go to learn how to dance, you know, and I'll say, I'll teach you how to walk onto the floor. And that'll be it. <laughs> and is it, you know, am I sort of, you know, caricaturing the thing by saying that the poor fella is dragged along reluctantly to that? Or has that changed over the years? It has changed. Has it? Yes, yeah. it has to a certain extent. Yeah. And sometimes I have a couple at the moment and they're both very into it, you know, good, and yeah. they're getting married in 11 weeks time. Yeah. So um, yes, they're doing they're doing well, but yeah, it it yeah. has changed. the The man is more willing what, to. What I alluded to at the the introduction there is that you know it's the calling card. It's what's necessary for people to get out and meet friends now and to socialise of a certain age. Is is that fair to say, Yvonne? Absolutely. Um, the the uh, the benefits of dance, I think, at times gets overlooked, mm. and even by you know, some professionals that that are telling us to get out there and get healthy and whatever, you know, it can sometimes be overlooked, I they feel. They don't mention that as a... Not yeah. always, no. I have some doctors now that would, you would hear them mentioning it when they're being interviewed, but not as much as it should be because, you know, I'll give you four um, aspects of it would be health, um, emotional... Mm-hmm. side of things, uh, the physical side of things and the social side of it. Yes. You know, they're huge. Yeah, I can never get over it. I mean, when I look down on people dancing, the, 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 the sheer exertion of it, I mean, they're, they're covered in sweat by the end of the night. I mean, it really, really is great exercise. Absolutely. There's the physical side. Yeah. The mental side is getting up, getting out. Yeah. You know, um, people that suffer from depression, it's great for them as well. Is it? You know, yeah. people living alone. You know, you could, I could talk to you for a week about mm. the the benefits of dance. Right, but there, there's a lot of benefits to it. I, is it harder? I mean, I know that there seems to be more women than men dancing. Is is that correct? Is it? <laughs> yes, there yeah. is. When when you go to when you go to a social dance, there yes, usually the is. Men are, they're I in have, great demand. I have a couple of classes. That the in the last few weeks there's more men than women. Ah, okay. You know, sometimes it happens, but as a rule, it is definitely uh, more women than men. Right. But they're great. The women are great. You see, in a dance class, they will get up and they'll dance with each other now, and they'll have a great laugh about it. Yeah, and that's the difference. The men isn't won't it? dance with with, with another easy. man. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but what that means is that a whole group of women can go out together and, yes, and, and enjoy absolutely. the night. Anyway. And what I've started to do in some of my classes is I will ask some of the women, "Are you willing to dance as the man tonight?" Okay. And I'll teach them the man steps, and they're delighted then because then they know they can go to a dance and they can get up and dance correctly. Very good. Are the men a bit sheepish when they come into you? Are they a little insecure? No, they're. They're doing okay. Are yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, they're okay. My whole idea of... I love to teach through a certain amount of fun. They're, mm. You know, it's you're there to enjoy yes. the night. And people learn a lot easier. You know, it's not strict. It's not like ballroom, which would be much more strict mm. uh, social dancing you know it is it's much more enjoyable it appears to me that there's a little bit of a divide though between those who are into formation dancing and, and those who are into doing their own thing and stuff certainly down around the Cork side there's a bit of a row going on that they're taking up too much of the dance floor space and that is, is that something that you're aware of you, yes you can I suppose um, I came up through the 
ballroom side of mm. things, so I know from that side of it. But I only teach the social side because that's the side I really love. Mm. I love the, the, the more freedom of it, we'll say. Do you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Excuse me. And people could be put off as well by seeing the ballroom end of things, which, as you say, yes. is very, very yes. strict. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, I don't think it has a place that mm. much in the social dance scene. Yeah. You know, I think that's for the people who are just out to have a good night, enjoy themselves dancing, meet and, people. And, and have a bit of fun. And then, like, even though every so often you see somebody strutting their stuff uh, that looks very polished certainly to me anyway I know yeah and yeah. and they are very polished and they're beautiful dancers and you know we'll all say oh, aren't they gorgeous I'd love to dance like that and it probably helps me in my business it'll mm. make somebody come and say can you teach me how to dance right and that notion because I believe I fall into this category of somebody with two left legs I mean I, I I can't dance. I've tried it on occasion and I, I, I just can't. And you'd think I'd be able to because I can yes. count the beats and stuff, but yeah. I can't. Yeah, I've come across that a lot with people who play music um, that aren't as good about getting out on a dance floor and dancing and you'd think they could, you know, pick it up very easily. But no, yeah. not always. But yeah, it's I interesting. could still teach you, Fran, I bet. <laughs> I'll God, put it out there. God help you. I'd be walking <laughs> on your toes, that's for sure. Um, the youngsters, they seem to be getting big time into the, to the jiving. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I was down in um, oh, what's the, the, the agricultural college there in, in um, Piltown. Mm. Um, they asked me to go down and teach them uh, jive. Yeah. And I had great fun. Did you? Oh, they're... I ended up learning steps from some of them. You know, they're absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And is there an American influence on that now as well, on the jiving from the, the old country thing and the... the yes, yeah. there, there could be, yeah, the Gareth Brooks scene, yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, the line dancing yes. thing. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a good thing because if they're out there absolutely. jiving, it's, it's Because great, you yeah. see it yourself in the social dances, the the age group that you yeah. have. You know, we need younger people. That's for absolute certain indeed. Yeah. Tell me about uh, the ballroom dancing. Where where did you get an interest in that in the first place? I suppose I just loved dance mm. from being a very small child. I did ballet and I just loved movement. Yeah. And as I got older then, I said, what will I do? Irish dance I had done a little of. Uh, wasn't really my thing. Mm. And discovered ballroom. Right. And started learning to yeah. dance and took to it like a duck to water. And is Never it as strict back. as it looks? Because, I mean, it is so disciplined and polished. and It is, yes, it is. It is a strict um, dance. Yeah. And uh, did you enjoy it? Did you? I loved you, you it. Got, you got yeah, great... I love certain aspects of it. Um, and I suppose it taught me how to teach. Yes. And that is where my love is. Yeah, and what about that where teaching is concerned? I mean, I, I taught for a very short amount of time, but I found it exhausting. Um, not dance, uh, I hasten to say piano. But um, is it exhausting for you to teach? I don't find it so. Do you I not? could feel exhausted going into a dance class and the minute I turn the music on, that's it. The endorphins kick in and I'm off. And I will not leave that floor for the hour and a half, which usually runs over. Yeah. Um, and I just love it. I get such satisfaction when I see a couple 
people coming into me and who can't dance. And months later or whatever time later, I see those on the dance floor at a social dance, laughing and enjoying themselves yes. and doing the steps correctly. I get great satisfaction out of saying yes. I'm, I'm sure you do, do indeed. What do you make of the whole Dancing with the Stars thing and all of those? And I have it dancing? all taped. Do I you? haven't looked at one of it yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I keep saying some night I'm going to sit down and look at it and then I'm out every night of the week dancing anywhere, teaching. Of course. Um, yeah. But yeah, I like it. Do you like it? And what I about love, the... I, I suppose I love the movement. I love the the outfits mm. um, I love watching the steps I don't necessarily want to do it but I love watching but you, it but you love it and yeah. what do you mean uh, what do you make of the adjudication because it can be caustic at times oh absolutely be, yeah yes. is that part of the, the... Uh, well yeah ballroom dancing it can be fairly brutal Wow, yeah. okay. Tell me about tonight then, because you're teaching in uh, Feather. I'm in, in Feather tonight. Yeah, gorgeous in ballroom. The ballroom. There, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Can people just turn up of a Absolutely, and I hope they do. Okay. What yeah. time? 8 o'clock. All my classes start at 8 p.m. Right. And yeah. as many people um, as you can handle Absolutely. there tonight, yeah. The more. The more I have, the right. better I teach. Very good. And where else, just in case people listen on to us the, outside of the on county? On the Tuesday, today. I'm in Johnswell in County Kilkenny. Mm -hmm. On the Wednesday, I'm in Buttervent down in County Cork. That is some class. Yeah. And on the Thursday, I'm in Mooncoin. Right. Very good indeed. So all over the place. People don't need to register or anything, just turn no, up and they you'll can, be made to feel No, they can welcome. give me a ring if they wish, but otherwise they can just turn up. All right. Um, somebody saying, could Yvonne come to Ross Gray, please, or somewhere close by? We need her. <laughs> <laughs> well, Feathered would be the closest there, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would, but it's a hell of a journey from, from yes. Ross Gray. But yes. who knows, you might get up that side Absolutely. of the world at, at some point I'm or other. I'm open to offers. All right, I'm hearing as well that Social Dance on Saturday night in Holy Cross Community Hall and it's happening uh, 9pm to 12 and that's it from Anne-Marie as well. Some social, some ballroom dancers really go out of their way to make their presence seen. So somebody who's kind of kind of angry out there. Um, is there an element of that, an element of showing off? I suppose there is. But yeah. then again, maybe it's not showing off. It's the fact that they've been taught in this particular way. Of course. You know, as I said, I came up through that. Uh, I'm very th thankful for it. Yeah. But I don't want to do it anymore. I prefer the social, the social side of, element it. of yeah. it. Well, tonight in Feathered, uh, if you want to be taught by Yvonne, who, and I've seen her in action, only character, fantastic teacher, and uh, 8 o'clock tonight in Feathered Ballroom. Lovely to see you, Yvonne. We wish you the well. Thank you, Thank Fred. you very much indeed. That's it for me, Emma. Producer Ali looks after her content. Stephen is on the way with the Time Tunnel, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.